Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by returning guest and fellow historian, albeit not medievalist, Morgan Morales, to discuss Agora. So welcome, Morgan. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you for having me back. Yeah, you, you keep having me back. I think this is the fifth episode. <laughs> You're one of my most frequent uh, my most frequent guest hosts, so thank you. This is because I watch a lot of movies. <laughs> because I'm not a medievalist, but I am a movie person. I did take two medieval history courses in one quarter as an undergrad, where this movie got mentioned, actually. Oh. Yeah, a kid made a comment about how Christians didn't attack women. Hmm. Um, and the professor just looks at him and she goes, let me tell you about Hypatia of Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I hate to, I hate to break it, Tim, but also does it hold up when we look at, in fact, even archaeological evidence of uh, Christian massacres of Jews anyway. So in addition to the fact that you are not a medievalist, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular film? still, as always, for these episodes. I am a historian of abortion during the Holocaust. I've taken to referring myself as an abortion historian for the fun rhyminess, but also for the political aspect of it at this point. It's so timely now. Isn't it timely? Yeah, I am an abortion historian. But yeah, I I think this movie is really interesting in what it does. It kind of defies what the sword and sandal epic really is. Mm-hmm. It's very much a thinking kind of movie. I'm not trying to sound pretentious about that. I think it very much is. And also I love Rachel Weiss. She's um, so great. Yes. Listeners can't actually see that I'm currently wearing a t-shirt for the mummy, um, <laughs> which when I told Sarah, this is, this movie is the middle entry to an unofficial trilogy in which Rachel Weiss plays academics. Um, yes. which is thrilling as an so academic. Cool. So cool. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is, this is what, this is what we always wished academics could be like. So glamorous. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I always describe the mummy as being a movie in which a female am- academic saves the world with the help from her muscly companions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also really a movie about a female academic who has some muscly companions. Yeah. Yeah, he's the protagonist of that movie. So, but yeah, I, I actually think this movie's really fascinating. I mm-hmm. think we'll get to some of the reasons why, particularly in terms of gender. And you don't often see, if you see a movie like this with a woman at the center of the plot, it's often romantic. Yes. And this is not romantic, which I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I do as well. And that's that's definitely one of the things that I have a lot of appreciation for this movie for, as we'll get into, is the fact that while there are people who express an interest in her there isn't actually really a romantic plot at any point and she never expresses interest in any of them yeah yeah and that is definitely that is definitely I would say a kind of big pro of this film and it's a film that I think really wants to be good on gender I think ultimately there are things it could have done better but there's also things I really appreciate absolutely and I think that a big part when we get to talking about the end after we do the, um, yes. the summary, we'll, I'll go into what I have, the problems that I specifically have and how it treats gender. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll discuss. Yeah. yeah. I think that really comes through like in the last 20 minutes of the movie. 
Absolutely. Of course, it stars Rachel Weiss, as we've said, as Hypatia. It also has Max Minghella as the slave Davis, uh, so who you might know as Divya in The Social Network or Nick in The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, no, no stranger to religious fundamentalism. Indeed, indeed. And this is, I will note, an invented character who, when I was looking up this film on Wikipedia, was described as eyes for the audience, which I find fascinating, given that I find him to be a deeply unsympathetic piece of shit. So I don't, did not personally feel as the audience that I was like experiencing things through his eyes as opposed to wanting them to be plucked out. But, you know. And we, we can get into the why of that because he is. Oh, he's, yes. I think you're supposed to see him as this, you know, innocent romantic character who gets caught up in a storm. It's like, no, though, you're yeah, no. awful. Uh, and like, uh, you know, the fact that you're a slave doesn't mean you can't also be awful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They could have done something. They could have still made him awful, but commented on it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Also stars Oscar Isaac as Orestes, a, a character who, I'll be honest, I was, you know, is still a kind of flawed character, but when I was kind of pleasantly surprised, sort of improved in some ways as a character, really just because I like Oscar Isaac and find him immensely charming. He's very charming. Um, this was the first year I saw Os- Oscar Isaac in anything, because this was the year he also did Robin Hood. The Ridley Scott Oh, Master. yes. Which I, I still will say, I think he is the only good thing about that movie. Or yeah, well, I no. think, or him and um, oh, what is her name? I think it's Eileen Atkinson who plays Eileen Eleanor Atkinson. of Aquitaine. Yeah. I think that that dynamic is the only good part of that movie. I don't want to jinx it, but I think it might be impossible to mess up Eleanor of Aquitaine in film because I've never seen a bad depiction of her. I agree with that. Yeah, um, I don't want to jinx it because I'm sure someone can mess it up. Um, but so far, we're doing well with it. But yeah, so I saw I saw Robin Hood, and then I actually saw. Agora in the theater. It came to two whole movie theaters in California, and I happen to live near one of them. I just saw this a couple of days ago. Uh, shout out to my mother. My mother has been telling me to watch this movie for like maybe <laughs> since 2009, so she'll be thrilled that I'm finally covering it. Also stars Sami Samir as Cyril of Alexandria, Ashraf Barholm as Ammonius, Michael Lonsdale as Theon of Alexandria, who's Hypatia's dad, and shout out to him since he also is the abbot in The Name of the Rose, the uh, the original movie, so he uh, is no stranger to the Middle Ages. I saw him, I think, in Munich. Yeah, he's in the movie Munich, the Spielberg movie. Oh, okay. I... Have I seen Munich? I think I didn't. I didn't see Munich. I think I had a sort of period where I was just kind of not in the mood for most movies it's, about men. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. It's fine. It's a, it's a fine movie. And also Rupert Evans as Synesius of Cyrene, and who, from what I understand, he is known for uh, The Men in the High Castle and Charmed, though I have not, the new Charmed, though I have not actually seen either of those. I've not seen the new Charmed. Yeah, he was, I've watched the first two seasons of The Man in the High Castle. I actually like that book, but as a Holocaust historian, I have a real problem with kind of carrying on that history. Yeah, that's fair. Into the modern period, just because I, I, most of them, there are things that would have happened had the Nazis succeeded that usually get put into these plots that shouldn't be there. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, if the Nazis succeeded, you should not have European Jews. Yeah. In your story. Yeah, that seems obvious. 
Yes. So, I mean, and, and I, I'm sure that some of your listeners might actually be a little bit more familiar with Man in the High Castle, and I have not watched it since the second season aired. Mm-hmm. But there are certain little things like that that just kind of like, yeah, I don't think that character would exist. Yeah. Based on where you are. But yeah. So, I mean, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more familiar with him. Um, okay. I have no, no interest in the new Charmed. I, I, I never actually watched the old Charmed either, so... It's on mute. It's it's on mute when I'm at the gym in the mornings. There's there's a no matter what. There's always a charmed rerun on the new one or the old one. The old one. Okay. The OG with uh, okay. um, Shannon Doherty. Mm. So the final person I've written down is Humayun Ershadi as Aspasias, who is her slave slash basically research assistant in the second half of the film, and I think now. I want to go ahead and mention just a couple things about the cast. One is that this movie, the casting director is for this movie, made a choice that the most villainous characters are the characters played by the actors in this film who are Arab and have the darkest skin in the film. And that is a move which is problematic and that very much feels like they're associating dark skin with villain with villainy and in particular associating people who appear as potentially arab with basically terrorism yeah i mean we've talked this movie's very much um it's it's very much about how bad religion is Um, yes and it uses hypatia's story to tell that had Islam existed at this period. I'm sure that Alejandro Amenabar would have included some of them as, as part of his all religion sucks. But I, I think he needed to be much more mindful of the casting. Yes. Here, because it's it's very blatant in the fact. I mean, on, honestly, the, particularly in some of the early scenes where, where you have debates in the, the Agora between pagans and Christians. I mean, it's really, really noticeable how dark the christians are yes. the christians are compared to the pagans yeah which and not just because their robes tend to be black in these scenes i mean it's it's because yeah they hired it. darker skinned actors generally so it is it is deeply problematic the other thing i will note related to the cast is that you might have noticed based on the list that i just gave that there is only one woman's name And so for a movie that's very much presenting itself as to some extent a kind of feminist narrative as well and centers a female character. And I think Hypatia as a character is great, but it sort of makes you wonder like, why is Hypatia apparently the only woman who exists in the entire city of Alexandria? Yeah, it's it's why I was writing my notes for this movie and it's interesting because it does not pass the Bechdel test and it does oh, not no. pass the Decker test. Oh no. And that's not for the normal reasons that those things normally fail. I mean, right. The Bechdel test normally fails because they're talking about men. Here it fails because there is no other woman. Right. And that's something certainly that there are other examples of this, right? I mean, I find Star Wars, the like Star Wars original trilogy to be an example in that I think Carrie Fisher's great. I think Leia is an amazing character. Leia has never met another woman. <laughs> The comic books kind of fix that, which is nice, but you're right. In the original movies, I mean, George Lucas kind of writes her a little bit like he writes romance in the prequel trilogy, which is terrible. 
but at yeah. least Padme gets a friend. Right. Right. And so, yeah. And so that is something that I do want to kind of note that I do find somewhat problematic is the fact that Hypatia has never apparently interacted with another woman. I believe we don't actually know anything about Hypatia's mother, but given that it takes liberties, they certainly could have had her mother be in the movie. They also, again, given that the film takes liberties, that we certainly have a lot of Hypatia's interactions uh, with enslaved people in her household. We actually do, I guess, briefly, very briefly see one enslaved woman who identifies as a Christian. Hypatia never talks to her. We know nothing about her. We know nothing about the fact that there presumably are other enslaved women in the household. Hypatia does not seem to know to be aware of them in any way. So there's, there's a lot of that. There is. Yeah. I I just, I mean, I find it fascinating that this does not pass those two tests, which of course are bare minimum tests, Um, but for not at all for the reasons that we're used to seeing them fail. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's, it's something that is frustrating because I feel like they, they just could have done better in that regard uh, in a film that does so much well on gender in terms of Hypatia's character. So at this point, we can get into the enumeratio or recap. I will say, I ended up really liking this movie. The opening crawl filled me with a bit of foreboding in ways that I think do feed into what I think are the kind of flaws of the movie. It says that the Roman Empire is on the verge of collapse, a claim that I will discuss in more detail later. And then talks about how Alexandria is still great. It still has this library, which is an important symbol. And then as the city's long established pagan cult was now challenged by the Jewish faith and a rapidly spreading religion until recently banned Christianity. And this filled me with some foreboding because in the same way as these, you know, terms like Judeo-Christian, which I actively tell my students not to use and do not use myself because I think it is deeply problematic. It seems like it is presenting Jews and Christians as being fundamentally in the same category and on the same side in a way that is fundamentally inaccurate to the Jewish experience of living under the newly Christian Roman Empire. Right. I mean, it's, first of all, the idea of Judeo-Christian is very now- Yes. Um, It really doesn't have a historical basis. Neither Jews nor Christians in the fourth century or the fifth or the sixth and seventh, we can continue on for a while, would think of themselves in any way as being part of a shared entity in any kind of meaningful sense. They would not use that term. Neither Jews nor Christians would. Right, right. So, and I think that's one of the, the, the issues kind of at the heart of this movie, and maybe issue isn't the right word, that it's looking at religion through a very late 20th, early 20th century lens. So it has trouble escaping those phrases that get used with that, such as this Jewish, this idea of a Jewish Christian alliance. Exactly. And that it wants to make a claim essentially that religion is bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist. I can't say I'm fond of organized religion, but I think and know as a historian who deals with a, you know, a period in which religion matters, that the reality is much more complicated. And a move that this film makes is that essentially it, to some extent, kind of presents, you know, Judaism and Christianity, right, as representing religion and polytheists or pagans essentially as being atheists, which is 
also not a correct portrayal of, uh, you know, how, how most polytheists would have understood themselves at this time. They, they had in fact a whole lot of gods. Yeah. yeah. And and I do think it is worth noting that Alejandro Amenabar is an atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been mentioned in a couple of articles and this movie came out, but yeah, so his, his views on that are certainly filtering through with that. I mean, and that's, you know, that's his point of view, but you know, historically it is not accurate, but yeah, I mean, polytheists are, they mention the gods multiple times. Mm-hmm. The gods are present, and that's not the same thing as no god. Right. And and the film is very kind of back and forth on this, right? That on the one hand, it kind of acknowledges the existence of various pagan gods, but on the other hand, very much tends to present the pagans as not caring much about religion and instead as being mostly devoted to philosophy. Right, right but does not really acknowledge the fact, but does not acknowledge the fact that there's also, you know, Christians who are interested in philosophy and Jews, etc. So, so we meet Hypatia. She is teaching. She's in this kind of classroom setting. She has a group of entirely male students. And uh, we highlight the fact that there is uh, something of a kind of dispute between students who are pagan and students who are Christian. So uh, that we have uh, Synesius, who is a Christian, and Orestes, who is a pagan. We also meet uh, her slave, Davis, who is kind of her assistant, essentially, in this classroom setting. And we learn that Orestes is in love with her and that she is meh on the subject. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 probably the most shallow comment I, I will make. I don't blame him. No, no. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that ultimately there isn't a romance, but they would make a very attractive couple. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if, uh, if we're going, if we, if we could be shallow for just a moment. We kind of have this move that, uh, you know, he is interested in her in ways that he expresses, like, in context, which are not fully appropriate. Like, his mannerism in a classroom in relation to his teacher is questionable. I will say he he was a character who I found very unpleasant at first and then was kind of pleasantly surprised because Oscar Isaac is so charming that uh, he he improved. He is charming. I This opening scene just... Apparently, I have not seen this movie since I've gone, you know, through as much of grad school as I have now, because it just kind of brought me back to sitting in grad seminars. Right. Yeah, it very much feels like a graduate school classroom in terms of the the conversations that are happening. The right. ways not- even in which they're kind of blending conversations about science with conversations about what's going on in the world around them. Yeah, it's not a lecture. It's It's more of a discussion. She's inviting them to talk and challenge her and... That's kind of how they think the best grad seminars go. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, she, she seems like a great teacher and you really get the vibe of what it's like to be in her classroom and the reason that that is exciting and interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is really successful. We then also see conflict happening beyond the classroom and in the city much more violently between pagans and Christians. I love the pagan who like kind of fondly recalls the good old days when they threw the Christians to the lions. And then there's this episode with Ammonius, who will become a major character, who manages to walk across this fire pit, claiming that it's a miracle. 
you know, and it's clear, you can kind of tell that it's, you know, while he's walking across hot coals, you can tell he's kind of picking his way across in a way that he can potentially avoid getting too horribly burned. And then they say, Pagan, prove that you can do the same thing. And then basically just like throw him into the pit of fire in such a way that he cannot avoid getting out without being burned, at least partly. Right. God exists because I made it through this. You're getting burned to death because your gods don't exist, even though, you know. Yes we threw you into the fire face first. Right, exactly. So the film makes it very clear. And this I actually do like, you know, that the film I think makes it very clear that like there is a non-supernatural explanation for why the Christian got through relatively unscathed and the pagan didn't. Right. And certainly also emphasizes that this is a deeply violent interaction. And this is something that we also see moving forward. And I will say on the part of the film that although ultimately the polytheists are presented as our heroes, they're also not perfect. That, for example, you know, we have Hypatia's father, Theon, who is overall presented as somebody who is supposed to be a likable character, that he basically, you know, he finds a cross, right? And he says that, you know, that belongs to one of the enslaved people in his household and says, basically, I'm going to punish you for being a, you know, when I find out who this belongs to, I'm going to punish you because like Christians suck, essentially. Look what they did today. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's also a distinction in how, you know, he handles that and how they show Hypatia reacting to it at the the culmination of that. Yes, so that in her slave Davis, he he claims that he's also a Christian, which at this moment seems to not actually be true, but seems to be basically him standing up for this other enslaved woman who has no name and who we never learn anything about or see again, that he's basically just trying to protect her because he's such a, quote, nice guy, so that he, you know, stands in, takes the whipping, and he and Tapatia have a conversation about this. Uh, and also that he has built a model of Ptolemy's cosmography, which he presents to the class. So he's he's a nice guy who just wants to learn science. He gets to lead discussion that week. Yep. Yep. And they also start having, you know, additional conversation, include, beginning with Orestes basically bitching that the gods didn't ask him for his opinion. <laughs> on the way the universe works uh and i think synesius then saying like how dare you can like question the will of god and so we have this kind of conflict which i mean seems just like to me like just men being jerks uh which is also about religion to some extent yeah i I threw in a long german word at you in my notes for this part because i said synesius probably, you know, paired with the religious fundamentalism. And the haircut has a real backpfeifen gesicht, which is the German word for having a very punchable face. (laughs) He really does, despite the fact that he's not actually, he's far from the most villainous Christian in this film. No, he actually, he is a little bit, you know, when we get toward the end, you know, you mentioned that Orestes kind of has this surprising arc where he's not quite as disappointing as we expected him to be. I mean, the same could, I think be said for Synesius because from where he is sitting in this classroom where I want to punch him in the face and where he ends up, there are still some gender issues, which we will get to, but I don't think he ended up quite as being nefarious as I had expected him to be. Yeah. That those characters, I think do both get some amount of nuance and, and the film is interesting, right? Is that there's some characters who get that nuance. There's some who really don't. 
And then there's somebody like Davis, who I feel like the film wants to be nuanced and isn't actually succeeding in making him anything but utterly hateable. Right, right. And so and Rapatia is trying to intervene in this debate, saying, you know, we more unites us than divides us and that we are all brothers, despite the fact that they do not entirely seem to agree. We also see Davis beginning his flirtation with Christianity, which essentially begins with he's listens some preach to some preaching, at which point Ammonius basically. I mean, I know it's between two men, but I really want to say he's kind of mansplaining prayer. <laughs> to him it's really patronizing yes he's like do you even know how to pray yeah <laughs> it's like, come on dude uh and then basically bullies him into giving charity uh-huh <laughs> which is which i found to be weird right in the sense that simultaneously you know giving charity is a good thing but also the way in which he's pushed into doing it is really shitty it is i mean i don't think it's it's untrue of particularly strict adherence to, to, to Christianity, or I mean, Mm -hmm. Christianity is what I'm familiar with because it is what I've been raised with peripherally at least, but yeah, it, it, it's, and it can be very nefarious and there's kind of the guilt of it. Well, if you're not giving. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, this, this guy is a slave. He, he has money. He, he stated that he has his own money, but it's not much. Right. And that's accurate, right? That mm-hmm. slaves were able to have, a, you know, some amount of, you know, so that they were able to actually have money, but that it generally wasn't a lot of money. It also is very possibly money that they might be in, a, you know, saving up in the hopes of uh, purchasing their own freedom one day, which is something that they can do in this particular context. And so, you know, it's this, it's a scene, right, which is, which is, I think it's, I think it's really interesting in the way that it makes it really kind of indicates that, you know, the the way in which charity is being approached, even though the giving of charity and the giving to people who clearly are in need should be a good thing, that the way in which it's being pushed on, pe- on other people who are also vulnerable is gross. It is, and it, main- it, well, it maintains a hierarchy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So... At this point, they're uh, they're at a they go or, or so they're at a, they're at some kind of uh, of show. At which point, Orestes takes the opportunity now to uh, his his other really poor scene to uncomfortably uh, publicly hit on Hypatia with some really mediocre flute playing, while she just sits there, accepts the flute, and looks like she wants to die. I mean, much as I don't blame him, I also don't blame her. This is this oh is, no, this is akin to public proposals. Yes, yes, which are, I mean, which I find cringe-inducing even when it's a couple who have talked are actually together, yeah. yeah. I saw one yesterday. I saw a person, I've never actually, yeah. I, I guess I've never actually, like, been super up close to one. I've been at, like, sports events, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. I, and I, it's, I, I mean, I'm decently up close to it because the soccer stadium here for, um, so I'm in, I'm in North Carolina. We have a NWSL National Women's Soccer League professional soccer team. And I went to a game yesterday, which is why I'm tan and look much more of my ethnic self than I usually do. And at the end of it, we're walking out and we see these two women who are allowed to walk on the field for some reason. And one gets on one knee. And the two people I was with were just like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't, don't. Because um, it's cringy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this is Orestes, um, his, his version of his public proposal to her with some bad flute playing. Right. And I will say, I, I really like this scene in that 
I think it's very common in films to present this kind of public grand gesture to get the girl as being something that women like and respond to. And I I love that. Yeah, that this film is very clearly like she is so embarrassed and so miserable and so angry and can't say it right there. But just like her, I I mean, and Rachel Weisz has a great like facial expression indicating all of those things. I mean, I, 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 I actually love the public singing scene in 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> it's so charming because Heath Ledger is charming, but it's absolutely one of those moments where it's like, if this happened in real life, especially with somebody who's like not Heath Ledger, it, it would, would be mortifying. Yes, absolutely. it's actually really refreshing that it's, it's like they took that trope and made it the cringe moment that it actually is. And you're right, Rachel Weisz has a really great facial expression. Yes. I mean, I, I actually think that as much of a leading lady as she is, she's really underrated when it comes to more of the character acting aspects where she does make those great facial expressions. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. She is great. And she also really pulls off the scene, which uh, as I will discuss is drawn from source material that she responds in class by Gifting Orestes a cloth, which as he opens, she reveals to him it is a cloth with the blood of my cycle. And that, uh, you know, she, in that perhaps he should look elsewhere for perfect beauty and harmony. But it does take a lot to pull that off. It takes a lot to pull that off. Yeah. yeah. He gets mad and storms out. Davis creepily grabs it as they leave. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, it, it. I mean, it's creepy, but I think it's kind of meant to play as, well, he doesn't mind the imperfection. Never mind the fact that it is not an imperfection, it's a natural part of life. And that it, okay, on the one hand, I don't think men should be grossed out by menstruation, which is a, you know, natural part of thing that, you know, women's and some other bodies do. And that, you know, I think that the fact that, like, cis men are grossed out by it is problematic. At the same time, I also find it creepy and stalkerish for a man to, like, collect, essentially, a tampon. Oh, no, that is exactly what it is. It is creepy and stalkerish. And he continues to be creepy and stalkerish. Yes, he does. Yeah, so that, and that is very much the vibe and this is why I think he is garbage. But again, it's very much like Davis is just such the like, look, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Like, no, no, he's not though. He's not. Ugh. Okay. We continue now with our interreligious conflicts. The priest wants to basically have them all kind of rise up in against the Christians uh, in punishment for them being obnoxious about various things. Hypatia speaks against violence, says we shouldn't be, you know, making our people into murderers. But ultimately, her father ends up siding with, uh, and is he a prefect or something, or just vaguely important? I think, I think he's kind of just vaguely important and okay. as being important. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me if he's, a, yeah. I, don't, I don't think in historically he's necessarily supposed to have a political, an official political status, so I could, I'm not sure about that. I think that Michael Lonsdale's an actor with a lot of gravitas. Yes. And I think that that's kind of meant to imply how he is seen at the very least within his, his inner circle. Yes. So they, so he signs on to this. The priest uh, tells the Jews to do as they wish. We have yet to actually see a Jew, but we're occasionally reminded that they are in theory there. 
uh, and that the Christians should go join their own and that the pagans at Nahuatl should go and attack the Christians. The Christians, meanwhile, are wrecking stuff. Uh, there is a particularly, there's a moment where we see a Christian bishop mocking a statue of Athena for not responding as they pelt her with rotten fruit. This is the closest thing we have to a second female character in this movie. <laughs> and the pagans arrive armed, and so we've 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 got a bit of a battle. And and I will say that I think this film also I think does a good job of while there is you know inclusion of violence and battle scenes. I don't think it gives over much weight to that compared to other aspects of the film in terms of like, you know, intellectual endeavors and conversations and things like that. Right. I think the, the attempt is to, to establish that this is a violent period, but to not be an action movie, basically. Yeah. And, and I will say that the, I think pretty much all of the acts of violence that are depicted in the film are in fact they are in fact based on specific real events uh, you know with with some twists in terms of the details but that the fact that there is you know the but that essentially like these are all very specific interreligious and other kind of you know internal conflict riots that we actually you know that happened in Alexandria in the late fourth and early fifth century so Theon sort of there bemused, Orestes actively joins the fray. Okay, you can help me with this. So we have in this scene, right, that we that Theon ultimately ends up getting like brutally attacked by somebody who's supposed to be one of his slaves. I thought it was Davis, but then Davis is still just kind of there and chilling out and nobody seems to be concerned. I I I think they kind of other than Davis, they made all the slaves look interchangeable. Okay. I mean, they're all kind of, they all kind of look alike to me. And I think probably if I hadn't just spent four seasons watching Max Mingell on The Handmaid's Tale, I, I probably would have forgotten what he looked like too. Okay. Um, so it is a different one. Yeah. I, I think it's a different one. Yeah. Okay. Great. I, I had definitely, like, I kind of knew I'd seen him before, but I, I mean, I, I only watched the first two seasons of *A Handmaid's Tale*. Of *The Handmaid's Tale*, and that was at this point a while ago. And I saw *The Social Network*, but that also at this point was a while ago. So he did not like intensely stick in my head as a person. So okay. So yeah. So I appreciate knowing that. Okay, that was in fact a different person. Yeah. Who, so yeah. So a different one of the slaves attacks Theon, who is you know not doing great and uh basically the priests end up kind of closing the gates to the serapium and kind of barricading themselves inside they start by saying you know they're going to keep all the christians as hostages and uh Arestes, somewhat surprisingly uh actually stands up for them and in particular i think stands up for simesius right who had this conflict within class but that you know he at this point, I, you know, the, the nice version is that he genuinely has been kind of influenced by, you know, Hypatia saying we're all brothers, there's more unites us than divides us. The cynical version is that he's, you know, just saying it because he still is trying to, like, get with her. At, at this stage, I think either is a valid interpretation. Yeah, there. I mean, I think there's certainly some politics at play, which we see that come in. Yes. Like, within the next 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But he does stand up for them. So at the moment, they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what to do next. Somebody basically says that at this point, since when were there so many Christians? 
<laughs> which I actually find a really entertaining line given that in fact and this is pretty common in terms of medieval and or, you know medieval and late antique demography that you know we don't have like statistics in terms of you know precisely like percentages of the population and things like that right there's estimates that get made based on various sources but it's really hard to really kind of pinpoint that sort of thing and and we actually don't quite know for sure whether at this, at precisely this moment, uh, we actually don't know for sure whether pagans or Christians were the majority. <laughs> and so I think it is interesting that there's this moment they're like, oh, they don't either, actually. Like, they're, oh, God, there's more Christians than I thought there were. Hypatia <laughs> tends to her father. They're expressing some concern about possible reprisals from a Christian emperor. Synesius and the other Christians do end up escaping, but he speaks a blessing over Hypatia, which, you know, other than the fact that, like, I'm always a little, like, eh, on Christians blessing people without their consent, it is kindly meant and shows that he respects her. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, he doesn't mean any will, many, mean any ill will toward her. And I will say I found that much more understandable and likable and positive than Davis furtively groping her foot while she's sleeping a thing that, yeah. that happens yeah that was that that was going to be my my next thing I mentioned about him after basically taking her her tampon yeah it's creepy so it's creepy. just he just inches his hand toward her foot and it's so just creepy because uh, he's, he's also watching her while she sleeps yeah, and the watching her while she sleeps at first, I was like, okay, I'll buy into it on the grounds that, like, it could make sense that he is literally guarding her. Yeah, but then he grabs but the foot. Yeah, the foot thing is like, nope, 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 that, no, thank you. Yeah, it's super, super creepy. It is not the, the tender gesture that, that I think they intend it to be. No, no. Uh, yeah, this is the point at which, so, you know, so spoiler alert, everybody, and you know, it's a real historical figure. She's going to die. We all know this watching the movie. This is the point where I write in my notes, I'm almost glad she dies because it sounds better than ending up with either of these men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Her father is uh, doing uh, poorly we continue to have some uh, some debates at this point there there are some great exchanges of insults that at some point like the pagans you know yell over the walls what's that carpenter god of yours doing now and the christians go building coffins for you scum and like <laughs> i i kind of like the exchange of insults i mean they're pretty good they're no, they're no your mother was a hamster insult but they're pretty good they're, yeah, and they were so they remind me of the fact, and this is something that I actually show to my students all the time when I'm teaching early Christianity and uh, and you know talking about also the pre-Christian Roman Empire, that there's this piece of graffiti from I think it, I think it's from Rome. This actually Rome itself, which has a picture of a crucified figure with the head of a donkey and a man standing next to it uh, with the label Alexa Meadows worshiping God. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just, you know, it's really, like, I kind of yeah. like that I think the film captures the mutual exchange of insults about religion exchange, like, kind of constantly between Christians and polytheists at a moment where we're kind of, like, at precisely moments where we're kind of seeing a shift in the balance of power, essentially. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so that is something that I, that I do like about this. While we're, you know, still 
trapped in this uh, kind of, you know, under siege, essentially, we have more conversation about science and about Ptolemy and uh, Hypatia brings up this figure of Aristarchus and the possibility that the Earth might in fact move. So arguing for a heliocentric model. And that will become the other running thread of this film is Hypatia uh, attempting to prove and explain how a heliocentric model and one in which the Earth moves actually would work. But the siege ultimately ends, not entirely surprisingly, with the Christian Roman emperor ultimately intervening, I would say, in what is an effort to some extent at fairness in that he does pardon all of the pagans who are involved in, in fact, you know, instigators of this riot, but also basically says that the Serapium and the library should be turned over at will to the Christians. And we have Theon and Tapatia and some others that go to rescue, yeah, go to rescue some of the books, and uh, then eventually flee. We have the Christian attackers come in. I love that their rallying cry is "God is one," which I think is funny because they kind of think God is three. It, yeah, yeah. I, I did appreciate saving the books because that's probably what I would do as well. Yeah, um, yeah it's very honestly, probably a lot lighter carrying a bunch of scrolls than you know. A bunch yeah. Of yeah, bunch of papyrus scrolls. Not you know, could have been could have been worse. Good thing that we're still in the uh, the papyrus scroll stage in terms of uh, the contents of the library. You've, you've heard the myth that the Wells Library at Indiana is sinking, right? No, I actually hadn't heard that. Oh, so there's a myth it's sinking the, under the weight of the books. Yeah, yeah, because there are nine, or at least when we were there, there are nine million volumes at the Herman B. Wells Library at Indiana University. And the myth is that they didn't plan for the weight of the books. And so the building is sinking. Um, it's not true, but also that wouldn't happen with papyrus. Right, right. Only a problem with, you know, physical, physical books. And, and arguably, you know, could have been even more of a problem in the Middle Ages in which, you know, we have books actually printed, you know, or not printed, but um, you know, written on animal skin, not to yeah. mention the often quite hefty covers. So. Oh, they're intense. Yeah, though I guess I definitely have, I have, I have some academic books which could also be used as weapons, so. Oh, I, yeah, there, there are some on the shelf. I'm, I'm actually looking at them right now that are just, like, I have to pack them soon and I'm dreading it. It's, it's nothing makes me rethink my life as an ac- academic more than having to pack up oh my and God, carry yes. my books. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 100% agreed. <laughs> so Davis goes back and at first they seem to think he's going back to protect their gods or die for their gods or whatever. He gets in. Ammonius, so clever, yells, hey, Davis, the Slavis. <laughs> Hazing the new guy. Perfect conservative Christian humor has never and will never be funny. No. No. <laughs> With the exception of the line building coffins for you, scum. That was pretty good. Uh, yeah. And then Davis switches sides and he's a Christian now. And this is where I think the film kind of lets itself down in that it simultaneously, for plot reasons, needs to present this character, right, as apparently sincerely switching over to Christianity. But because at the same time, the film wants Christianity to be like aggressively unappealing, it doesn't give us any reason to explain why. Right. So I don't find his conversion to be particularly honest. 
What did you see as the justification for it, though? Because in this moment, it doesn't actually seem like it really meaningfully necessarily gives him power. And in fact, I believe in this period, you know, even actually had, you know, being baptized would not mean he would be freed. It would mean they'd have to sell him to a Christian. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's part of the problem is I don't really, I don't really see the impetus for him doing this. It gives neither a good explanation for a pragmatic or a sincere conversion. Right. And I think that that's a huge part of the problem with the movie, especially going forward. Like you mentioned, am I supposed to believe that this man fully believes Christ, the son of God died for everybody's sins. And this is the way that people should live. Or is he just kind of trying to figure himself out through various means? Or is it maybe a little both, but none of that is clear enough. So I think it should have been a little bit more of an existential crisis for him than it is. Right. And so it seems very much like he's just kind of jumping into this, but, you know, we don't see much of his internal struggle. The film doesn't really deal with that. We don't understand what his reasons are. Right. And it's, it's not even necessarily his depiction as a slave. Does he want more power? Does he want his freedom? I don't think that that's particularly clear either because clearly he likes her now that's, yeah that's, and, and I realize that's it's a little bit of a problematic statement because there's a power dynamic that's at work here and I think ultimately power is at the heart of this I just don't think it's quite clear enough but they needed to show that he was a little bit more lost in his life than he is whereas you know he does still have the freedom to put together his 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 model of the cosmos and have his ideas heard I mean, he yeah. actually stops that lesson to make sure that people pay attention to him rather yeah. than Oscar Isaac debating why, uh, or Orestes rather, debating why the gods didn't control him when they created the world. Everyone pay attention to Davos, who did actual real science for that period. Yeah. So it's not to say, and I, I think I'm a little bit more cognizant of how I'm phrasing this, because very often in United States history with slavery, which this is not right. the same, we get so many depictions of, well, those slaves really didn't have it that bad look. It was okay. And that's not what I'm trying to say, but I think that, that he is not shown as conflicted enough about his situation. Right. It makes his conversion to make sense. In fact, he is shown as at least marginally satisfied with his situation. And the other thing that I think would have helped with this is that, I mean, there are ways in which Christianity presented itself in this period as appealing to enslaved people by kind of creating these discourses, which are not actually true, but that there are these discourses about equality within Christ and about all Christians being equal by virtue of their shared faith. And, and again, you know, not that that actually entirely plays out in terms of the fact that, you know, there's still absolutely a status and hierarchy within Christianity. But if they'd at least engaged with those discourses instead of the kind of weird scene in which his introduction to Christianity is essentially him just, in fact, like being kind of further marginalized and having his own like marginal status kind of used against him. I, I, I feel like we needed at least the scene which would have made him believe that Christianity offered something better. Right. And even as you, as you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it's not even a guarantee of his freedom. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, and so as, as I said, I feel like they needed 
to give us more of a reason for him to become Christian as opposed to just the implication that he's vaguely dissatisfied. And so I guess I'll hit things now. Yeah, which is, I mean, and that that is the moment of his conversion, essentially, is beating that statue. Yeah, it's like futilely hitting a statue with a sword. And so then it just seems like, all right, so you're just, and this isn't a surprise, but like, it's like, okay, so now all I'm getting is that you're just another like toxic masculine piece of shit who is like angry that a woman won't fuck you. And so you have to hit something like. And that's the next scene. And that's the next thing is seen is that then he goes to Hypatia's house and tries to rape her. Yeah. And that I think is, so when I mentioned the power dynamics, a couple of minutes ago, that's precisely what I was kind of getting us toward is that this is, this is very much him trying to change the power dynamics, but I think it's depicted a little bit too much romantically. Yeah. Because he stops himself. It's okay. Because he stops himself. It's okay. He also then takes his sword and tries to give it to her at which point I write in my notes, kill yourself. You coward. I hate him. I hate him so much. I hate him before this scene. And then this scene was like, nope, nope. I I will never, nothing you can possibly do will make me not hate you. Yeah. So why is this guy the eyes for the audience? Yeah. And it's it's just so it, weird that this, I think want, they really want this character to be sympathetic. And I just, I, I don't know why they why, think yeah, that also, he is. If you want this character to be kind of the entryway for your audience, don't have your entryway commit sexual assault. Don't have your entryway, yeah, be a, a creepy stalker who then, like many creepy stalkers, commit sexual assault. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, mm, mm. Yeah, because I mean, it, and it is, it feels like, well, he didn't rape her. He stopped himself. He did still assault her. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, he absolutely committed sexual assault. Uh, he, and I, I do mm-hmm. think she mm-hmm. plays it very well. Like, yes. I think that you can see how shaken she is by the encounter. Yes, absolutely. What did you think about the fact that she she gives him his freedom after that? I was kind of interpreting it as a just like, I don't want to take any kind of formal reprisal against you, you know, given the fact that I believe, you know, because of the power dynamic, he probably would have been executed. But I also don't want to like have you around. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that that's, that's kind of similar. But also, I mean, it's probably the worst thing that could have happened to him yeah because it's ultimately a rejection of him absolutely yeah that collar keeps him to her it keeps Mm -hmm. her in his life and she is you know by by taking it off of him and she's just telling him leave yeah we're done it's there 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 is no coming back from this yeah you Um, no longer have any reason whatsoever to be in my life Right. So, I mean, ultimately, I think she actually does get that power back in doing that. But I mean, it's, it's, I think that if that movie were made now and by a woman, you might have a little bit more with that to to further establish that. I agree. And so I will say that in some ways, in terms of her reaction and the way in which I think, you know, a decent amount of the scene is kind of focused on her I think if you have to have a sexual assault scene, which to be clear, I don't think we had to have. If you had to have one, this is far from the worst example of one that I've seen. But A, you didn't need to have one. And B, I think that 
having this scene is fundamentally incompatible with the film's subsequent efforts to want to continue present Davis as just like a nice guy who's just struggling to figure out who he is. Well, I mean, this is the only, the only, and I'm going to use this word very, very loosely. This is the only sexual part of the movie. Yes. Which I also think is interesting. And I think that there is a really interesting way in which Hypatia in this film, I think arguably is coded as asexual. I think so too. Absolutely. And I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so the only instance of any kind of remotely sexual behavior, and I I do have an issue with using that with attempted rape because it's not about the sex is through violence. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing common in medieval depictions and and going into antiquity that, you know, we have to Mm -hmm. show how bad things were through rape right exactly and it's it's really fundamentally I think not necessary uh, you know I mean because I think you could have accomplished the same thing right in terms of having her have a reason to kind of reject him by just actually having her at some point I'm sure you could have contrived a reason for her to witness him doing like some shitty thing having joined the Christians I mean have him burn a book yeah exactly have her have her somehow see him burning a book right And that I think would do it. And you could absolutely have that be the justification, right, for her doing the same thing. Yeah. And so, you know, and so because of that, it it seems really fundamentally unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think I've ever seen any scene of sexual assault or rape in a movie that's necessary. No, absolutely not. Including the movie I covered recently, where the entire plot is about a sexual assault, uh, in which the woman is a secondary character. Anyway, I won't talk about that film more. Saw the movie, listened to the episode. Yeah. Okay. We now move forward. I think it just says several years. I think in terms of it's actually like twenty five. Yeah, it's a long time span. Um, nobody ages. But then again, yeah. I actually I don't think Rachel Vice ages. My best friend and I have a joke that because Daniel Craig is aging mm-hmm. quite noticeably, that there's some weird Dorian Gray shit going on in their house. <laughs> yeah, she looks great. Yeah. Yeah, Oscar Isaac, I also feel like, has not really aged since 2009. No, he's grayer. It's noticeable, but it's subtle. It, it's it's like he's doing that thing that men do where they get better looking if they get yeah. older. So you can't really tell that he's getting older. He's just kind of becoming a little bit more distinguished. Um, right. Max Minghella actually has aged. It's very noticeable even before they make him grow a beard in this movie to tell us that he's older. It, kind, it really struck me how baby-faced he is yeah. in this movie and also how high his voice is in it because his voice has mm. gotten so much deeper. Oh, um, huh. The older he gets, the more he sounds like his father, who is the who director. Is Anthony Minghella, who won an Oscar for directing The English Patient and oh. also directed Talented Mr. Ripley in Cold Mountain. Oh, interesting. Great director, rest in peace. Yeah. But yeah, the older he gets, the more Max Minghella sounds like his father. Interesting. So yeah, they're age, yeah. they're age notices, but yeah, no, Rachel Weiss is, is ageless, is timeless. Yeah. But um, yeah, so you know, so so now we know that and that, you know, they could have, you know, said 25 years had passed, and we absolutely could have believed that, you know, Rachel Weiss was still, you know, looked exactly the same and maybe Oscar Isaac too. But uh, but yes, but I do like that they they just say kind of several years because I think they probably don't want to draw attention to the fact that it is 25 years and therefore arguably some of these people should look somewhat older. Especially with 
with all that sunlight. I, one of my comments in the notes is that there is no way she's far too pale to be in this much sun. She's so pale. With any her and Synesius as well. Synesius becomes like the bishop of Libya. And there, she's so pale. There's too much sun without SPF 50 at least. Yeah. These are very, very English people. And we don't even see them with like a parasol or anything. No, no. Which makes it, and it, in the movie's kind of shot in a high contrast, mm-hmm. which makes it more noticeable. I, I, so I will yeah. say, I will take this moment to say I think the movie is shot beautifully. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. There's some very high production values in this movie. I mean, you think of how much it costs to make something like Gladiator and then to make something like this at a considerably lower budget. I think it was like 70 million US. Yeah. So we have our next, uh, our kind of mid-movie crawl update informing us that pagan worship has been banned Again, the initial phrasing of this, only Christian and Jewish worship are permitted. And I'm just like, "Mm, mm, that is so aggressively not how I would phrase that. We are also told that the pagans have been converted. The Roman Empire has been split in two. Just like 25 years have passed at this point. And that Christianity reigns supreme, except for now they acknowledge basically, you know, except for those pesky Jews. I I mean, I really hope that someday there is a medieval set movie that actually does some more significant research on Jews during this era. I know there's that yeah, movie, The I Physician, that. that is a little bit better, I think. The Physician I have problems with in that The Physician kind of makes the move of ultimately presenting Muslims as significantly less tolerant than Christians in a period where that is uh, not how I would define things. Right. So I think there, I mean, there are some improvements, but then you, you, for some reason, filmmakers can't bring it all together. It's weird in that that's a movie that I feel like gets like all of the big things wrong, but then like does a lot of micro research. So like it says that the, that Muslims only tolerate Jews and not Christians, which is like fundamentally inaccurate on a really big macro level, but then also like did the research and the circumcision knife, knife bless them is like perfectly accurate. <laughs> Well, I mean, even the, the um, and this is where me being an abortion historian comes in and knowing, you know, a decent amount, I mean, decent amount about medical histories, that transfer of knowledge is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the area that, that, that yeah. Area is depicted in that movie. But yeah, yeah, someday, someday, someone, I hope, gets it right when it comes to talking about Jews in the medieval era. I would era. love that. I would love that. Uh, yeah, this, um, this film is not it, doing it. it. No, but at least they know Jews exist. Yes, I will give them points for knowing Jews exist. And after that opener, I would say in the second half of the film, to some extent, acknowledging the reality of some of the dynamics at play. Right. So the bishop dies and we get a fancy new bishop. And our fancy new bishop is named Cyril, and he'll be our main antagonist for the remainder of the film. And Davis is now one of a kind of dour, black-clad Christian. He is one of the uh, the Parabolani. The Christians we see entering this stadium while the Jews are, like, listening to what kind of is, like, being played as, like, a klezmer band. Yeah, I noticed that, too, this time. And I don't know if it's because I just actually recently was listening to some klezmer because I was trying to practice some Yiddish. Um, but, yeah, it sounds weirdly klezmer, and I was not expecting that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, the music. I, I like the score for this. Dario Marianelli did it. He's 
at this point was like three years after having won an Oscar for Atonement. And Atonement is 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 a movie that is supposed to be good, but really isn't. But the is one thing it, the one thing that it gets absolutely right is it's got a really fantastic score. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of continues that here with a, a really, really good good score for this movie um, yeah no the the score is very good but yeah so this and so this scene in the stadium as i'll talk about more in a bit is based on a real event but it would actually have been i believe a mime show okay. <laughs> uh, perhaps quieter uh and it just it felt to me like they basically were making a choice essentially to kind of present it as something that would be like recognizably Jewish to the audience. I don't know what that means though. I mean, because that kind of assumes that there's one monolithic sounds Jewish. Um, Well, but I think there is in like a specific, like modern imagination. Right. And I think it's also very telling that like, I think a lot of the, a lot of the like hair and beard choices and things like that to me very much read as like them trying to present these as like Ashkenazi Orthodox Jews and that that's how you identify somebody as being likely to be Jewish in a modern film. Yeah. And so, you know, and so obviously like that's not true, right? Obviously Jews look a lot of different ways and have a lot of different kinds of food and have a lot of different kinds of music, but that I think there is still a kind of shorthand of a certain kind of like, basically modern orthodox like ashkenazi yiddish speaking jewishness that is like shorthand in films for like look jews i mean it's like it's like a history of the world part one right that they're yeah. like they're like that's what they are they're like they're ashkenaz they're like 20 they're like 19th century ashkenazi jews like they look like they came out of fiddler on the roof yeah yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think that's what's uh, what's happening with the uh, the choices that are made uh, musically and visually speaking in this scene. Yeah, and it's it's I mean that is a consistent problem with Jewish depictions. Yes, the Jews are attacked. Basically, they won't defend themselves because it's the Sabbath. Orestes is kind of trying. Orestes is now prefect, and he's kind of presented as trying to keep the peace. The rabbis are annoyed, understandably speaking, at, you know, this whole event. And Tapisha is also basically trying to tell Orestes, essentially, that when Cyril's talking about, like, it's time to clean up the city or whatever his language is, you know, he's, he's not just talking about the Jews. He's talking about pagans and also maybe people like you who aren't as Christian or Christian in the right way. Yeah, this is kind of where I, I, I was noticing this. This is actually starting to where I kind of wish they would have just left Jews out of the conversation. I also had moments of thinking that, yeah. And, she, you know, I will be fair in that I also would have been annoyed if they'd done that. But the film ultimately essentially makes this move where the Jews are included as part of this story of interreligious conflict, including as participating very overtly in interreligious violence, that there's some stuff that I'll need to go back to in a moment, but that like we actually have this bit where like the Jews essentially lure a bunch of Christians into a trap by claiming that a church is being set on fire and then attacking them. And this is something that really happened. 
But by including the Jews only in this context of interreligious strife and violence and not actually giving any meaningful attention to, like, there's not a single Jewish, like, named character with a personality. No, and they're very, they're very caricature, even when he's talking to, um, I guess they're rabbis. Yeah, I guess they're supposed to be rabbis. I guess they're rabbis. It, 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 the leaders of the Jewish community, we'll say. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I mean, I was kind of trying, I was thinking elders, but it wasn't really comfortable with that phrasing either. I don't know, even the way they kind of depict them, it's like needy. And the yeah. Man, it's very, it's a very strange vibe. Yeah, they're like kind of just presented as being sort of whiny. They feel very much like um, an undifferentiated mass, especially because again, we don't, I don't think any of them are in the film referred to by name. They might have names in the credits. I didn't check, but I don't think they're referred. I don't think any of them are referred to in the film by name. Certainly none of them, as I, none of them are characters. Right. Right. And that, that's also, I mean, I, I don't enjoy that part of it, but there, this is how they're depicted. I mean, because it's also yeah. kind of, first of all, it, makes them seem a little bit passive and that they they need yes. someone else to fix their problems but and also, in that regard i do almost kind of like that they actually show them as participating in this interreligious violence which they did right that they're not in fact passive. right right and that's i mean and that's such a common misconception i don't think so much within academia but it is i think within the public yeah yeah, um, so the fact that we do have them fighting back and that, you know, this, and that this religious violence, right, it is multi-sided. There's no one group that is solely, in, that is solely, you know, victimized without fighting back. Right, but they're also depicted as this nameless mass in some very fine robes. And um, yeah, so it's not that, you know, it's not that there might not have been some wealth there, but when you have them as a nameless mass, clearly dressed better than, you know, the Christians, at yeah. least. There are some tropes there. Yeah. And, you know, in ways that, like, feel like there are also, like, the Sanhedrin and kind of nasty movies about Jesus, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of vibes. Um, and which is exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah. Yeah, that that very much seemed kind of like what it was going for, or at least what it in either intentionally or unintentionally was drawing on. And as I said, for me, I think, uh, you know, a big part of the problem is that, you know, the depiction I almost could have uh, forgiven if there had been like a single Jewish character who we'd seen, you know, say having a conversation with Orestes and Hypatia about this situation on a kind of private level. level. Right. right. Which is, I mean, just something that, you know, we know, in fact, that Orestes did, you know, cultivate relationships in the same way that he cultivated a relationship with Hypatia as a kind of representative of the pagan community. And he having been at this point a Christian, that we also know that he uh, cultivated relationships with the leaders of the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And if we'd seen that and actually given characterization to even one member of the Jewish community, that would have helped, at least. You know the Billy Eichner sketch from Billy on the Street where he chases someone down and says, for a dollar, name a woman? (laughs) So I feel that way a lot about movies in general. For a dollar, name a woman. But at this point, I'd say, for a dollar, name a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, 
it's definitely, it definitely is something that, that bothers me about yeah. this part of the film. Better, we do have Hypatia continuing to try and figure out heliocentrism in there. There's some kind of interesting scenes. I really like how it's visualized that we have this bit where she's like, she's on a boat and they have to, and she like gets her, her like slave research assistant to go up to the like mast of the boat and drop down a sack. And the fact that the sack drops just like right below the mast, right? Proves that it's acting as if the boat were stationary. And so maybe that's what the earth is doing. I'm sure there are some research assistants who feel that they are slaves. Yeah. Um, but no, I actually... I, well, yeah, right. Like, I don't want to trivialize slavery, but also, like, the way some faculty treat the research assistants is very gross. Uh, yeah. And I will say this movie, I think, does kind of sanitize slavery in a lot of ways. And while on the one hand, uh, slavery in the late ancient and medieval Mediterranean is not the same as plantation-based and also like race-based slavery in, you know, the modern United States. It's a very different system in a lot of ways. It's still slavery and it's still bad. And the fact that very much, you know, we have, you know, and it is accurate, right, that our characters are slave owners, but the fact that, you know, we really just have, like, look at how nice they are, and look at how well they and their slaves get along. And I think that 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 distinction is made very much when Theon asks his slaves which one of them is the Christian, which one have the Yes. And then showing how Hypatia instead, you know, treats um, Davis quite literally and figuratively after that encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think, you know, going back to the sexual assault scene, unfortunately, had they done a little bit more with the power dynamics of slavery, I think, I mean, the sexual assault will never make sense, but his desire for freedom and perhaps a different path in life might have made a little bit more sense. So you're right, Mm -hmm. this movie does sanitize slavery, and that's to the detriment both to how we perceive slavery, but also into the motivations of their own characters. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it's very much like they, they want to present certain people, you know, as, as kind of above reproach, right? And they want to this to be a very kind of easy story of like, there's good people and bad people. And while to some extent, you know, yes, in the grand scheme of things, uh, yeah, I mean, Hypatia obviously, you know, comes out a whole lot better in this story than Cyril, for example. Right. And I, so one thing that just kind of struck me as we were talking is that I think that kind of what comes out of this with Hypatia is this very much this idea of a virginal Christian martyr. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and that absolutely comes out in Hypatia's legacy, but it's very much, yeah, what they're doing in this film. And it is something that I really struggle with in that while aspects of it, you know, have connections to reality. And while I like the kind of asexuality angle, Mm -hmm. it also has this essentially like pure perfection that it attributes her, right? So she has to be like, she's nice all the time. Hypatia is literally never mean to anybody for one second. She's not even mean to Davis after he like attempts to rape her. Yeah, no, it's a very even, I mean, her emotions are very much in check, but I, but I think the fact that, that she's kind of depicted in a way that we would very much associate with, you know, Christian saints mm-hmm. is really antithetical to the rest of what Amenabar is trying to do here. Yes. Um, and I think, I think it really does speak to how even for 
people who might be atheists, you know, growing up in, you know, someplace like Spain, right? Right. It's, he's Spanish and Chilean. He's, he's, yeah. he grew up surrounded by Catholicism. Right. It's just so embedded culturally, you know, and I think this is true for a lot of American, you know, people of Christian background as well, but that is just so embedded that even if you're an still is kind of in the back of your subconscious as part of your value system, right? That this is, you know, the fact that she, you know, is a virginal martyr who constantly turns the other cheek. Yeah, yeah. Is what actually makes her a heroic figure. And that's very Christian. Right. I have this conversation actually with my students quite frequently because they'll say, well, I want to write about and this is this is kind of like there there is certainly a benefit to letting them pick whatever topic they want to write about, but there are also some downsides to letting them pick whatever topic they want to write about. And very often when they tell me, well, I want to write about Christianity because I understand it, I have to tell them, you understand your Christianity now. Christianity yes. in the past is not going to be the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're going to have a problem with that. And I think that, you know, that's kind of a similar filtering of, you know, Amenabar is clearly influenced by his Catholic upbringing, even if he's trying to comment on the dangers of religion and particularly of religious zealots, his mm-hmm. Catholicism is still there and it's still a part of how he's telling his stories. Yeah. And this is, I will say, one of the things that, you know, that I'm not even, that's kind of jumping out to me more in this conversation, even that I think it necessarily was when I was watching the film, is the fact that, I mean, this is also, I think, a common issue is that often female characters have to, are presented, it's almost the sense that female characters have to be perfect in order to be likable, whereas men are much, male characters are much more often given the chance, right, to be complex and flawed and anti-heroes. And but men are allowed yeah. to be anti-heroes. Women very much often aren't. And this is, this is actually, so I, I used, a, a friend of mine started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer last year. Mm-hmm. And I told her that one of the things that I appreciated is that Buffy is not always likable. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and obviously there's problems with Joss Whedon, but I think there are a lot of things that are ultimately really successful with Buffy as a character. And that's something that I think this film really could have afforded to do is to maybe give Hypatia a little bit more nuance, you know, to acknowledge the fact, you know, she, she owns slaves and like, she's not, not perfect. Like she doesn't always like treat them as like equals because hierarchically they're not. She yells at them once. Yeah. When they're trying to save the books. So even when it, even though she's yelling at them, it's in the service of a greater good because they're trying to save the knowledge. Right. And it's in this like really high emotion moment, right? Where I think because of that, it's even, you could even buy that it's not necessarily something that's about the fact that they're slaves, right? Like in that moment, you could absolutely see her like yelling at Orestes in the same way. Right, right. So I mean, yeah, and I I think that's such a good lesson that, you know, you don't have to have your female characters be likable all the time. But then again, I mean, we as a society expect women to be likable Mm -hmm. at all times. But then even if they are, we'll treat them like they're faking it. Yeah. You know, and that even like, she can be an extremely likable character and have like an imperfection, right? Like, Right. Yeah. In, in terms of like being a part of society, of a society where there are real social hierarchies that play and power dynamics that play out in real ways. And she is somebody who while she is, you know, in terms of, you know, talking about access to privilege, right, there are ways in which, like, she is a woman, you know, and that obviously kind of, and that is obviously something that's relevant 
she is somebody who still identifies as a pagan or polytheist at a moment where that's becoming a, you know, a, you know, religion that is being marginalized and, you know, and, uh, you know, socially uh, being kind of treated very differently, but she's also a wealthy slave owner. Right. So I actually think that part of this, this movie actually would have been improved by acknowledging that slavery is bad. Um, Yeah. It would have benefited, first of all, from making her a little bit more nuanced, but also it would have made Davos a little bit more believable. Yeah, agreed. Also, of course, we need to have the moment where, so not only are Christians very mean, Christians are also very dumb. That while the pagans, you know, have philosophy and science, we have the Christians who are sitting there saying, oh, the earth is, the heavens are a big box and the stars are glued to the top. And also the earth is flat, obviously. The universe is a third grade diorama. <laughs> That's what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. We do have the Jews finally, you know, the Jews, the Jews fight back in a like slightly good for them moment. Uh, and uh, Sarah then responds, you know, we, we got some, you know, we got some solid in terms of accurate, nasty, pretty, you know, early Christian anti-Jewish language, right? Jews being called Christ killers. We have a quote that I wrote down with some amount of accuracy that he says, it is God's will that they live as slaves, cursed and exiled until the end of time. You know, that's the sort of thing. And I'll have some other kind of choice examples of Cyril's commentary on the Jews specifically in a bit. That's the kind of thing that people in uh, that, you know, Christians in positions of power said about Jews in the fifth century. And beyond. And beyond, yes. So at this point, we're trying to essentially kind of move into this conflict between Orestes as a prefect and Cyril as, well, Bishop as he's called in the film, his actual title would have been Patriarch, but I guess they decided that people didn't know what that meant. You know, I'm usually okay with little changes like that yeah. to make it a little bit more accessible to the audience. I yeah, don't, no, no, I don't it doesn't bother it. me that much. I don't think the movie loses something by saying Bishop instead of Patriarch. It doesn't really bother me, except insofar as it kind of makes me think about all of the other ways in which this film very much kind of like flattens the dynamics of like there being different ways of being Christian in this period. Yeah. But otherwise it doesn't bother me. So we now have this conflict between Orestes and Cyril that Hypatia is now essentially attempting to uh, intervene in and uh, is kind of in this position, right, of giving advice to Orestes. So, and Synesius also, she kind of brings in Synesius as well to uh, ideally kind of help help out in terms of sort of brokering a piece, right? Because Cyril's obviously like not somebody who can talk to, but Synesius is like, you know, her, her former student, right? He's a kind of decent, decent guy. And so at this point, you know, they're kind of trying to figure things out. Oh, and there's this kind of bit where again, so they're kind of trying, they're kind of going, saying that they're going to kind of resolve this dispute, right, in the library. But in the library, they don't let non-Christians in these days. And then somebody says, well, if you want to enter the library, you can just convert. The Jews obviously aren't happy. Patia stands up and says, you know, why should one do that, given that Christianity has not proven itself to be any more just? This clearly is kind of moving into uh, the fact that she is going to now become a target. We have this actually very nice scene with her and Orestes, where she's kind of saying, like, you know, it's interesting, like, I never, like, loved anybody, and then she, you know, she's like, we've got the, like, brief, like, and then she's like, except you, Libanus, and we get to meet her dog. Like, relatable. Very relatable. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> my, my preference is often also for dogs. 
Um, but no, it is a nice, it's a really pleasant scene. I think it's actually a very mature scene considering where the two yeah. of them began. Yeah, that he says, you know, I, I couldn't see you as a devoted wife and mother. Everybody knows that like great story about how you like showed me up with your menstrual blood. Yep. And it is like a very, a very nice conversation where their relationship appears as intimate without being sexual. Yeah. And I, I really like that aspect of it. And I think that that kind of is the culmination of the fact that this is not a romantic movie and that yes. it's not, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and I, I really have, like that. Yeah. So you can have intimacy without it being romantic, which I think that a mm-hmm. lot of movies don't really understand. Yeah. And, and, you know, so as I said, like, this is really was one of those moments where, where I really, really came to like his character who I had not liked at all, right, that he's able to have the scene where they have a lot of physical closeness, they have a lot of emotional intimacy, but that it doesn't feel like, you know, he's trying to use that as a way to, you know, get in bed with her, basically. Right. And we also then, you know, that is then the kind of basis, right, in terms of explaining why it is that he then uh, basically kind of stands stands up for her. And so we have this conflict, which, you know, in reality, I would say she is not exactly quite so central in, but that she is really kind of presented, right, as being the center of this conflict, that knowing that Orestes relies on her advice, Cyril basically gives this whole speech about how women suck, <laughs> Citing the fact that, like, Jesus, you know, clearly knew that nobody should listen to women, and that's why he entrusted his legacy to 12 men, and says that Hypatia is a witch. It, this feels so much more Peter than Christ. Yeah, and it's a scene that I will say is not coming directly out of things Cyril said, unlike the anti-Judaism. But, you know, it's not, I would say, totally out of place for the kinds of things that, like, with the possible, you know, I'll talk about the way in which the kind of witch terminology is somewhat blurring things. But that overall, I would say the way he's talking about women is not, you know, beyond the pale for the kinds of things that Christians in the fifth century and beyond said. Yeah, no, it wasn't surprising. I mean, and when yeah. I say it sounds more like Peter than Christ, I, I, I yeah, or Paul could be Paul. I meant Paul. No, I meant Paul. Yeah, yeah. No, it's Paul, Peter. Yeah, I meant yeah. Paul. Yeah, very, very Pauline. Yeah, and Orestes, annoyed by this, refuses to kneel before him when everyone's supposed to be kneeling, and he eventually walks out, and um, you know, is kind of yelling like, "I'm just as Christian as you are." While there's this kind of mob attacking him, and Ammonius shows up again. He's got his like cool bag of rocks. Davis tries to stop him from throwing the stone, but is pushed down. And Ammonius, you know, throws his rock and uh, hits Orestes pretty hard in the head. And other people also continue it to attack. Orestes makes it, but, you know, was definitely, it seems like, pretty injured. Hypatia gets basically confined. You know, she, he tells her to stay to stay home because she's been accused of ungodliness and witchcraft. And Ammonius is executed, which, okay. Bye. Bye. Thoughts and prayers. Yep. Orestes and Synesius have a conversation, and uh, this is where Synesius has, I would say, you know, his moment where, while he's far from the worst Christian in this movie, he's also certainly, you know, not excellent. 
that he, you know, basically says, like, are you a real Christian? And why is it that you actually keep listening to this lady? Yeah, so this is kind of the point in the movie where I think kind of the gender thing kind of falls apart. Because it is that, why are you listening to a woman? But Despite also, the fact that he's spent a whole lot of time listening to that very same woman. Right, right. But also the way that they talk about her. Yes. That bothered me. And I still haven't quite figured out how I want to articulate this. So I'm just going to word vomit it all out. But it, everything about it feels patronizing. Like we have mm-hmm. to help the woman. She cannot do anything without us. She's mm-hmm. helpless without us. The men have to go and do this. And for a movie that is attempting to say something about feminism, about patriarchal power, it very often falls into these traps where it doesn't know how to get yes. itself out of this language. It's, yeah. It's, it's like a baby progressive on deer, deer legs trying to, to get a grip that doesn't quite manage it. It's the patronizing of it, but also kind of this idea of the idea is still there. Well, if you just convert, you will save your life. And in that, to me, essentially puts some responsibility for her eventual murder on her. It's that. And then it also, I think it does like essentially blame her for not giving up her beliefs, principles, whatever. It also... Except for the fact that she, I mean, except for the fit for her kind of refusing to do things, it leaves her, or well, the film then kind of sets things up such that she's very passive in a lot of ways in this last chunk of the film. And it's a lot of her being very passive while men try to do things to rescue her. Right. That, that's exactly what I was trying to articulate. Yeah. Also this idea of, and we had this conversation when we talked about the seventh seal and that the seventh seal is not mm-hmm. about the medieval era. It's about Swedish existentialism in a post-war era. This movie is not really about Hypatia so much as, as it yeah. is commenting on religion. Yes. And that's why when it gets to these more fervent conversations about religion, Hypatia is the character who suffers both in terms of narrative and being murdered. Yes. And that, that's, yeah. I think that that is embodied in this conversation of these two men who are at least kind of positioned as being allies, even if they don't always agree with her mm-hmm. talking around her. Whereas this is supposed to be one of the most learned people of your time, particularly within your circle. So I don't know, maybe talk to her too about what you should do about this. Yeah. There's, yeah. So there's that like that they're really not that they're not talking to her in ways that are uncomfortable. And it's this idealization, right, of martyrdom that despite the fact that it's an anti-Christian movie, it still is, and what we were saying before, right, it's an anti-Christian movie that's still kind of a Christian movie. Yep. And because of that, right, so you need to have this, this kind of valorization of martyrdom, which is something that is also, is kind of fundamentally passive, right? That at the end, you know, she has to make the decision to like not fight for her survival and not like do things actively to help or save herself. And so that then, you know, you have to then like cast like all of the men as helping her while she goes quietly and bravely and relatively passively to her martyrdom. Right. But yeah. Kind of a savior aspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. she died for our religious sins. Yeah. Orestes and Sinesius try to talk her into converting it because otherwise they won't be able to protect her. <laughs> she says no. And, you know, and he says like, but Sarah will win. She says Sarah has already won. 
She takes off. Interesting that she also refuses her escort. Again, just such a like accepting martyrdom move. I mean, my like Davis has heard that they're going to go after her and is kind of running all over the city trying to find her. Finally only does when the other Parabolani have captured her. And he, and they then like bring her in some, like into some church, strip her. He, because he's such a good guy, <laughs> talks okay. them into <laughs> stoning her to death instead of flaying her to death. He's such a nice guy. Uh-huh. And then basically like mercy suffocates her so that she will not feel the pain, tells the others that she's fainted and walks out. I think he's a coward. I, oh yeah, he's absolutely a coward. I, the, I, will, I will say one good thing about this scene is that I think it is filmed beautifully. I think it's filmed beautifully. And I also, the other thing I will say in favor of this scene is that especially given there's a variety of different accounts of precisely how Hypatia was killed, some of which are quite brutal. She also was dragged through the streets, either causing her death or after her death. I appreciate that this film doesn't really show all of that because I think it easily could have turned into a like torture porn focused on a woman's body. Mm-hmm. And I, and I appreciate that they made the choice to not do that. Yeah. So yeah. props on, on that. Um, but other than that, he, he killed her. I'm, yeah. I, he's just so- as called. Yeah. And, and certainly he's, you know, just as culpable as any of the others. Mm-hmm. And I see what they're going with with the mercy killing essentially in that like on the one hand you know on the one hand I will say like okay yeah it probably is more likely than anything else he could have done to actually get her the best possible outcome in terms of like she probably was going to you know even if he'd fought right would he actually have been have been successful right you know, so given that I will kind of allow for some pragmatism that like her at least dying a relatively painless death was the best possible hope that she could have had. But I agree that he's a coward. And I also, I think especially given his like creepy stalkerish vibes and the sexual assault, the ultimate like we end on like him essentially you know well suffocating her but like holding very tightly her naked body yeah it's creepy it's It's very creepy it's very creepy and then discarding her when done i think there's a visual with that just kind of drops her body to the floor i mean it's in slow motion but yeah yep yeah so it's i mean they they have to depict her death but i mean in in terms of how they handled davis handling it it's in character with what they did, even if they didn't intend to do it. Yes. I'm going to be honest. I think this entire film would have been better without that character existing at all. He's not necessary. You can still, you can have every conversation and every bit of tension about religion in it without that character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just, you don't have a person who's like your character, whose eyes you see through, I guess, when you're seeing the Christians sucking but I'm not sure you need that. No, you don't. I mean, also, I mean, they could have just had it the, the, the eyes of the movie be the woman. Right. Yeah. They could have, they could have just had that. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the eyes of the movie thing, I think in general is ridiculous. I think the, the only thing the character adds is to have 
a point of view character on screen in the scenes that are like just Christians being violent where neither there's no reason for like Hypatia or Orestes to be there, I guess. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, the, at the center of the DVD cover is Davis, not Hypatia. Oh, that's a move. And I do not like it. Yeah, no, it's, it's him in the middle and then her off to the left and Orestes off to the right. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. I mean, I also, I, while I don't dislike the title, I do also kind of wonder why her name isn't the title. Yeah, it feels a little bit misleading in terms of, of what the movie is going to be. So, I, I mean, I, but part of the problem I also have about putting him at the center is that she is the only named act, like, name recognition actor in this movie. Right, yeah. At that point. I mean, it's it's the beginning of the careers of both Max Minghella and Oscar Isaac. Mm-hmm. At this point, Rachel Weisz had an Oscar. Yeah, Rachel Weisz has an Oscar. She's the name, she really is the, you know, name brand actress. She's also very clearly, I think, the main character. And all of that really does make me think that they were like a little like worried, like, will nobody go see the movie if they know it's about a woman? And I think that, that that's probably the only reason for it from a marketing standpoint. No one so will go see the movie about a woman. So depressing. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 So at this point, let's talk a little bit about what the film got right and wrong, which you already touched on a little bit, but some details that I want to add. First of all, that I would like to quibble with the description of the Roman Empire as on the verge of collapse in the late fourth century. And that first of all, you know, there's all sorts of debates that scholars might have about like, I don't know, a long decline, right, of the Roman Empire. But if you're talking about, you know, precisely in the reign of Theodosius I, you know, people at the time would have said, like, he seems like he's, you know, powerful. He's kind of got his hands on the reins. The Roman Empire is doing okay. That people in that period, you know, because, like, people of that period don't know that the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which I'll mention in a moment, they don't know that that's, like, going to happen in X number of years, you know, they don't know that they don't know that that's going to happen in the next century. And so, you know, they think that things are going fine. The other thing, of course, is that it's so it's after Theodosius's death that the empire gets split into its Western and Eastern halves, which they do acknowledge right in the second part of the opening crawl. And while sure, you can, I guess, say at least just like chronologically that the Western Roman Empire is on the verge of collapse, the Eastern Roman Empire, which is what in fact Alexandria is a part of, very certainly isn't you know, the Eastern Roman Empire will certainly exist until the 15th century. It will be, you know, really doing just fine until at least, you know, the rise of Islam and those conquests in the 7th century. And so I think, you know, the idea that the the Eastern Roman Empire is on the verge of collapse, I think is just frankly wrong. I think that's also a problem of of trying to explain to audience. I mean, and and they did try to explain. They said, you know, in Western, but trying to explain that there's a difference that the Roman Empire was split. Mm-hmm. Um, because so often it's spoken of as one monolithic thing for its entire existence. And the people don't realize that the only Roman Empire that fell, right, is the Western Roman Empire that they don't really process, especially because of our terminology, right, that most often we use the term Byzantine Empire to refer to the Eastern Roman Empire, essentially to make it less confusing, because, uh, you know, because if, they, if, we, if we use the term that they use themselves, which is the Roman Empire, 
and that, you know, Muslim writers referred to it just as Rum, as Rome, that this would be confusing for, you know, for modern, for, you know, modern people, right, or for our, and for our students. And so we use this term, the Byzantine Empire, but that has the downside then that it elides the fact that, you know, from their perspective, they're just the Roman Empire, and they never fell, they continuously existed. So that's my, my little, my little quibble. There is, I'd say, you know, some some interesting kind of moves that the film, I mean, I think the film kind of has a lot of ways in which it is, it somewhat accurately depicts some of the interreligious conflict in Alexandria in the late fourth and early fifth centuries, but also very much wants to oversimplify a lot of things. Things like, you know, the Library of Alexandria and its destruction, right? That this film essentially presents this like completely intact, like this is the Library of Alexandria and it gets 100% destroyed by Chris by these Christian mobs in exactly this moment in 391. And, you know, this is ignoring the fact, first of all, that there's already a partial destruction of the library by Julius Caesar in the context of war going back to 48 BCE, And that already in about the second and third century, basically, things kind of get spread out such that there's not a kind of single library of Alexandria anymore. What we see in the film is the Serapium, which was founded in the third century BCE as a kind of daughter library that initially held uh, kind of some number of duplicate manuscripts. You know, this is still a significant set of holdings that um, already in the first century BCE, it's referred to as having about 43,000 papyrus scrolls. So certainly a significant uh, collection, but that it's not the sole uh, repository of knowledge, essentially, in the way that it's kind of presented in this film. And of course, there's a fact that so, so, you know, we have this kind of basis again in real events that in 391, Theodosius banned public performance of non-Christian rituals. We have this riot on the part of a number of the pagans and a Christian response. The pagans get pardoned, but they then allow the, at that time, uh, patriarch or bishop, uh, you know, Theophilus, uh, to take over the Serapium. But in the sources, the sources actually talk a lot more about the fact that they kind of took over and destroyed all these pagan idols than destruction of books. Okay, that's, I mean, it's probably less cinematic. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that, of course, you know, this movie, right, wants to be about this kind of destruction of knowledge, and also Christians as unequivocally anti-knowledge. It's the religion versus science debate. Exactly, yeah, which, as I'll get into in a moment, is not necessarily quite the most accurate way of understanding things in this period. But we do, as I said, certainly have real interfaith conflict in Alexandria and late antiquity. So Alexandria has basically like a lot of communities of different faiths. It's a major center of polytheistic worship. It has one of the largest uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora. So, you know, really like there's, there's a lot of Jews in Alexandria and a substantial Christian community. And as I was saying before, like we don't actually know who was the majority. <laughs> like it probably wasn't the Jews, but no. <laughs> It's like, like a of, population, yeah. but yeah, record keeping is. Yeah, but, you know, very much reflects the fact that, right, these are, you know, sizable populations. And we know that there is growing unrest. The Parabolani, who, you know, show up quite prominently in this film, are part of this unrest. So they're basically this quasi-monastic organization that's linked with charity and care for the sick. And especially in Alexandria, they seem to have been known essentially as disruptive and as troublemakers. So there's actually like laws against like 
that there's like laws essentially kind of talking about like the Parabolani like should like not be at the theaters because they're going to cause trouble there. (laughs) And there we know that there are some patriarchs of Alexandria who basically like attempt to kind of get the Parabolani going uh, in favor of what they want. So I'll talk about this more. We don't know for sure that the Parabolani were involved directly in Hypatia's death. It's, uh, you know, not set out right in any of the sources. It is a, you know, it is conjecture. You know, I would say there's arguments for it and arguments against it, essentially. I think it's not entirely impossible. You know, so we have this kind of growing unrest. And when we combine that with the fact that we have a changing set of power dynamics that essentially Christians are now newly allied, relatively newly allied with imperial power, right? And this goes back to Constantine for its legalizing Christianity uh, in the early fourth century with the Edict of Milan in uh, 313. And then that, you know, he, you know, increasingly, I would say, allies with Christianity, and then subsequent Roman emperors and Theodosius is very, uh, the first is very much one of these, you know, become really, I would say, kind of actual Christians. And so this means that Christians think that they can attack pagans, and sometimes also Jews, basically with impunity. (laughs) And also, you know, the pagans and the Jews sometimes fight back, right? This is This is not a situation in which one group is a kind of entirely innocent and passive victim that while the, you know, power dynamics essentially do mean, right, that, you know, Christians are increasingly at this point, the group that has the most kind of power that they can wield. Pagans, you know, have the kind of benefit of numbers. Jews have a as we move into the fifth century in particular, somewhat more of a kind of a robust justification for their continued existence being permitted than pagans. In this, you know, in the sense that like, while, you know, the Augustinian doctrine of witness is uh, bad, it does at least, you know, make the claim essentially that even if it's just because, you know, we want the Jews basically to serve as proof that like, yes, all of the things that we say about how the Old Testament, quote, Old Testament proves the truth of Jesus, like we get to say that's true because, you know, the Jews have the same text and so they can, they say like, oh no, you know, we didn't forge this. You know, it's not a great justification. It certainly, yeah, but, you know, it at the very least in theory means that Jews tend to be allowed to continue, you know, practicing Judaism, even while there are real restrictions faced on Jews. And even while there are certainly attacks on Jews and like attacks and attacks on synagogues uh, that, you know, Jews do not always win in those situations. And in fact, often don't. Still feels kind of modern. Right. Of course, I'll add in the dynamic that, you know, on the one hand, they, you know, the lip service, right, is forced conversions are bad and shouldn't be allowed, right? You should not forcibly convert Jews to Christianity. On the other hand, if you do forcibly convert Jews to Christianity, like too bad because baptism is forever. Yeah. (laughs) So even if you are a Jew and you were converted under duress, and even if that is very, very clearly known, then like too bad you're a Christian now. (laughs) So, you know. As I said, like nobody is passive. A lot of people are participating in violence, but we have a power, a set of power dynamics at play where very much like the Christians are the ones who are more likely to be able to engage in various kinds of religious violence with impunity. But also when I say Christians, I don't want to say not all Christians, but uh, <laughs> but 
one of the things that this film does leave out is the fact that there are different kinds of Christians and that there are other groups of Christians which are also very much being targeted. There are definitions that get made of what counts as orthodoxy and what counts as heresy in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. And I would say Theodosius's biggest priority over the pagans, over the Jews, is Arian Christians. So basically Christians who think that Jesus is subordinate to rather than equal to God the Father, which was a big, big issue in the fourth century. Their Arianism is a big issue in my research too. <laughs> Spelled differently. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> um but yeah, so that you yeah, know, these I still had to make the joke. It's, it's oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> these Aryan Christians get like very aggressively targeted by Theodosius. So, like a lot of this interreligious violence is also Christian on Christian, right? That that people who absolutely would have considered themselves Christian are being tarred as heretical and being attacked on those grounds. There's also, so uh, Cyril, our, our friend Cyril is known for having been involved in this like massacre of thousands of originist monks. Uh, so people who were followers of the third century theologian origin, who was thought, I, it basically is like being like a little too into like Neoplatonic alleg- like allegorical readings of scripture. Which then leads into the fact also that like philosophy, there are plenty of Christians who are really interested in philosophy. There are philosophical schools that are are basically like overtly like neoplatonic Christians. So Christians who have really similar ideas about about Platonist philosophy as somebody like Hypatia, because that's actually what she's very interested in. There are Christians who think about things very similarly. They're just then interested in applying that to scripture in a variety of ways. And so that pagan who gets thrown into the coals by the Christian, that's actually based on something, but it's based on something that was a, that was between two Christians. Oh, okay. With like one being a Christian who liked philosophy more. (laughs) Let's also talk a little bit more about the Jews. In that I want to add, in addition, you know, as part of talking about this power relationship, that the, you know, we've already touched on a lot of this, right, the problem in terms of this kind of implication that the pagans are beset by both Jews and by Christians, and this idea that, you know, that it seems to imply, right, the Jews and Christians are on the same side. First of all, add that Alexandria has a long history of like a, like a pre-Christian history of conflict between the Jews and the, you know, and polytheistic groups, you know, as like, as usual, the polytheists do not come out of that, like smelling like roses, uh, you know, nobody's so great. And Christians and Jews are not allies, everyone. They are not allies. They are not friends. So if we can give a few examples that I will share of uh, anti-Jewish laws passed by the Roman Empire pre-391, these include banning conversion to Judaism, punishing Jews who did anything to try and prevent other Jews from converting to Christianity, banning marriage between Jewish men and Christian women. It is specifically that 
it is, you know, obviously they do not have a marriage that is not between a man and a woman or people identified socially as a man and a woman. And a marriage between a Christian man and a Jewish woman is not as problematic because that fits into the hierarchy, because the idea is really right that, you know, in terms of how the hierarchy should work, Christians should be the ones in the positions of power over Jews. And the assumption is that husbands have power over their wives. And relatedly, that Jews cannot own Christian slaves. Uh, And by the way, this does not mean if you're a slave owned by a Jew or a pagan, if you convert to Christianity, that doesn't mean you get freed. That means that they, uh, you know, you have to get transferred to a Christian and be their slave. And they can choose to free you or not. And often not. I was just going to say, probably not. No, generally not. I mean, you know, it's the same. I would say it's, you know, that kind of pretty similar dynamic, right, to what we often see is that in this precisely this period, right, that there are certainly cases in which slaves buy their freedom or in which like owners manumit slaves on their deathbed or some, you know, or sometimes, you know, or sometimes not on their deathbed, you know, but that so there is there. So manumission does happen. And I would say is more common in the late antique and medieval Mediterranean than it is in, say, the 18th and 18th century United States. But it's still slavery. And uh, yeah, becoming Christian is not a path to freedom. And Christians are still slave owners. In fact, they get they get to own anybody they want to slaves. What is that hierarchy? <laughs> yep. Yeah, always good to be on top. And finally, my other, I guess, complaint is again, in that Christians are not a monolith, there are a lot of Christians who are very interested in science and mathematics, and they did not think the earth was flat. (laughs) (laughs) So, the Historia ad Veritas. Now we can talk a little about Hypatia, who is, of course, a real historical figure. Born in Alexandria, she was educated by her father, who is known in his own right as an astronomer and mathematician. And she's known for teaching a a quite wide array of subjects. So astronomy, mathematics, uh, occult sciences. That again, you know, I mean, the boundary between these things is not, you know, is not as hard and fast as it would be today. So actually, Synesius talks about basically like learning like weird, like occult stuff from Hypatia. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and like, uh, you know, and he's like, oh, that's, you know, that's fun. That's, that's where I learned this. Wow. Uh, and of course, Neoplatonic philosophy, which is, I would say, what she's probably kind of most invested in. And Synesius, who, again, was, you know, really her student and is a real person, you know, he became a, a bishop or patriarch himself. Uh, and he referred to her in his writings simply as the philosopher, which I find fun because, like, that's in other contexts, like, people refer to, like, Aristotle as the philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. So she's somebody who certainly garnered a lot of respect in her time. She's described very admiringly, both by Christian authors and by pagan ones. So that this is, again, you know, speaking to the fact, right, that uh, Christianity is not a monolith, there were a lot of Christians who responded with, you know, horror at her murder sometimes in ways that are problematic, as we'll get to in a bit, but uh, that certainly, you know, there is not a kind of general agreement that, you know, oh, that like pagan witch, that's the right thing to do. She is, I will note, also probably like one of the most prominent voices speaking on behalf of Alexandrian polytheists. She also, there is certainly no reason to think of her and polytheists in general in this period as an atheist. It's so different. It's 
it's such a weird conflation to make that he's doing here. It, it's, I'm now kind of stuck on it. There's a big difference between several gods and no gods. There is, isn't there? Yeah. And I think also it's one of those things, once again, that I think kind of fundamentally comes out of the ways in which even while being an atheist, he still kind of has this fundamentally Christian worldview that I think you often hear Christians and for that matter, Jews um, express that they feel that serious intellectual people couldn't have taken polytheistic ancient religions seriously because like really like all of those gods and they seem sort of almost human in terms of their behavior and quirks and they're like running around sleeping with mortal women, like how could they actually believe in that? And so there is, I think, a dismissal of the seriousness of polytheistic religion among people who kind of grow up with Christianity or Judaism. Uh, maybe this is true in Islam as well. I don't know. I've never asked anybody about this. But certainly, you know, Christianity and Judaism, I can speak to this. And uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think there is a lot that's kind of interesting going on in terms of that. And that, that kind of makes me think that that's sort of what's happening here is that the assumption is that if you're like a real philosopher and scientist, you certainly couldn't believe in like those silly gods. Very elitist. Yes. Yes. I mean, and also interesting, I think, on gender grounds in that the religions that have, like, feminine divine figures are also ones that are dismissed. Right. So. Like second-named character Athena? Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> if Hypatia had had a conversation with Athena, would that have counted as passing the Bechdel test? I don't know. Would I mean Athena would have had to have spoken back? Yeah, and she's a statue. Yeah, and if it had been like if it had been like a dream sequence, now well, if it had been a dream sequence, so you probably would have interpreted that as it's really just in her head. So, yeah, yeah. So no, still, still no. Unfortunately, still no. Yeah, unless you're really going for like a supernatural, the Greek gods are real move. Uh, I don't think it would count. Just that high pay should of Disney's Hercules. Yeah. Yeah, you know, or, or the Iliad for that matter. Yeah, yeah, that that probably should have been my next <laughs> rather than Disney. <laughs> I mean, Disney, Disney Hercules isn't getting it from nowhere. <sighs> but yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It is, um, you know, in Christian, you know, with monotheistic religions, they get rid of religions in which women can have power. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I will note that the her research on heliocentrism is uh, a kind of conjecture here that that's not something that there is direct evidence for. And in fact, we actually don't have any works that are that have survived that are definitively written by her, which is not entirely uncommon even for famous people in you know around this period. Right, right. There are a lot of you know so-and-so said this and then so-and-so said this and yeah it, it's it's an interesting it's it's really interesting from a modern history point of view to, to know mm-hmm. that you have to work with sources that are you know first of all much more limited than than we have and I say that yes. as someone who works with sources that you know if they weren't destroyed were likely buried under the ground but also you know hearsay very often 
yeah. second hand. It's still a primary source, but it's, you know, second, third hand. Right. So, you know, and that is also, I would say, you know, something that, you know, that like people who work on antiquity in the Middle Ages come across very frequently in that, you know, that is often kind of very different experience. And so, you know, I often, you know, talk to students who are very kind of used to seeing the only thing that counts as a primary source, right, is, is a really direct like eyewitness account, essentially. And especially, you know, and this happens obviously sometimes in modern contexts as well, but especially in pre-modern history, those often just don't exist. And so in practice, we treat as, you know, primary sources, but primary sources that you have to use very carefully, you know, ones that are second and third and fourth hand accounts and chronicles. And that's basically what we have for most of, you know, what we actually know about Aphasia. Yeah, I was talking about this, this issue with sources actually with one of our medieval faculty members here. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, you know, it essentially within terms of periodization, you might have documents that, that establish a trend throughout a couple of centuries. And that's because those are the documents that you have. Yeah. I think the film does overall a decent job of presenting the fact that basically Hypatia gets kind of caught up in this political conflict between Orestes and Cyril, with the exception of the fact that because the movie is about her, I think it gives her somewhat greater centrality, whereas the unfortunate reality is that she essentially is a kind of side target in a lot of ways. And I would say also is maybe like slightly overly kind to Orestes in this. He's not really defending principles. He's a kind of pragmatic politician. I think I feel like movies in general have a hard time with the idea of a pragmatic politician. Yes. Um, there always has to be something more behind it, maybe something a little bit more altruistic. Um, yes. It can't be as quite as self-serving as pragmatic politician often is. Yeah, and I think this especially comes up in terms of when we're having conversations and portrayals where we're talking about religious toleration and lack thereof is that the vast majority of religious toleration in the pre-modern world is very much pragmatic toleration. It's toleration because you find these groups useful because they're substantial populations and you want to keep the peace. And that's very much Orestes's deal that he actively cultivated alliances with different groups of people, including Hypatia essentially as a representative of the pagan community with Jewish leaders and essentially that basically his deal is that there has been a long history of conflict between the imperial prefects on the one side as representatives of secular authority and the patriarchs as representatives of religious authority who, and this will not be the first time this happened, want to say that because their authority is a spiritual one, they by definition have a greater authority and that they have authority over the prefects. And there will be similar claims made about, you know, kings and emperors and yeah. later periods. And the prefects, including Orestes, don't agree with that reading of the situation. Yeah, I think, I, and I think what we were talking about earlier, though, the scene where he defends Initius and, and you know, so we are brothers, the kind of, or we were wondering, is this, is he actually listening to Hypatia or is he playing politics here? And I think if mm -hmm. that had been a little bit more clear, it might have been a little bit more accurate to Orestes, to Orestes. Yeah, the thing that I do think is interesting is that I think the film does hint, although not exactly outright, say that his conversion is pragmatic. Yeah. And that I do like, and you know, because I think it is 
of value to acknowledge the extent to which, you know, pragmatic conversions were quite common in precisely this period. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is something that I, you know, I find, I find striking. And then there is, of course, Cyril, the other side of this conflict, who basically gets sometimes portrayed as like completely ruthless, sometimes as completely inept, and seems regardless, basically, of having been quite intent upon his ascendancy to the patriarchy to basically settle some personal scores with other Christians and also uh, against Jews, who he seems to have disliked on a combination of like personal and religious grounds. Some highlights of Cyril's commentary on Jews, content warning for uh, some intense anti-Jewish rhetoric that he describes him as the most deranged of all men, senseless, blind, uncomprehending, and demented. They are foolish God-haters, killers of the Lord, unbelievers and irreligious and he described the synagogue as a leprous house which perpetuates their monstrous impiety nice guy this sounds a little bit like and i'm jumping forwards a little over a thousand years here given the decline and fall of the roman empire and how he describes jews he uses really similar language when talking about about yeah. rome as cyril as like cyril does mm. um I can't remember the exact quote. It's been a while since I actually had to go through that book. I don't even remember something in the undergrad. I had to go through some of that book. But yeah, the way he describes Jews is is really kind of similar. Yeah, you know, the kind of casual mm-hmm. anti-Semitism of British people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cough, JK Rowling, cough. <laughs> so bringing us into 415... Orestes issues this edict regulating the mime shows. And the mime shows are very popular. They are also often uh, places where violence breaks out. They're also places that a lot of Jews basically are like, this seems like a fine thing to do on the Sabbath. Like, hey, they'll go to services, right? But then after services, you know, it's a long day. You gotta do something. You hang out at the mime show. <laughs> Hyrax, who's an ally of Cyril, goes to kind of figure out what the content is of the edict. He decides that he's cool with it, but then recites it out loud during one of these mime shows in what was probably an effort to deliberately provoke the Jewish population. They riot. Orestes retaliates against Hyrax, who gets publicly tortured. He's, he's not, you know, a nice, warm, fuzzy gentleman. He is publicly torturing people. Yeah. Again, this is very much like it's not that he really, really likes the Jews. It's that it's about his authority versus Cyril's authority. And this is very much also coming out too, and that Cyril very much cares about his authority and also seems to like not like the Jews. So he threatens to retaliate against the Jews. This is when they respond with this scheme where they do lure in a bunch of Christians and kill them, which I don't know, in the grand scheme of like Jewish Christian history, I'm kind of like, yeah, good for you. Cyril then expelled around 50,000 Jews, so at least kind of some substantial amount of the population of the city, uh, and then basically like tacitly encouraged people to like rob and attack them as they left. Of course he did. Of course he did. And synagogues were, of course, then forcibly converted into churches. We keep having this, you know, this conflict continues. There is a, you know, there is a group of monks who attack Orestes and, you know, Ammonius is a real person who hits Orestes in the head with a rock during this. Orestes has him tortured to death. You know, you, you can't be that 
upset but I will note you know the film like has him as executed there is a difference between executing and torturing to death oh yeah seems to have been torturing to death seems to have been the reality because again this is not a nice warm fuzzy gentleman no the execution seems that it would be the nicer option yes and it's it's you know off screen right we just see his corpse which you know doesn't seem particularly the worst for wear other than being dead Cyril manages to collect the body and does make this attempt to to have him declared a martyr and a saint. And one of the things that I do think is interesting, again, speaking of the fact that, like, Christians are not a monolith, they're not into this. They're like, we know that, like, he just, like, stoned (laughs) the prefect. Like, we know he's not a martyr for Christianity. It's like that you're having this, like, pissing contest with the prefect, like, with the prefect, like, and he's part of that. Like, come on. Even the city's Christians, yeah, are not that into this. I was talking to a friend once who was Jewish, um, and we were watching something about Poland, which is very, very Catholic. Um, And we were being told the story of how one church had a bell and another church needed a bigger one. So I told her that basically a lot of the history of um, Catholicism and Christianity is a pissing contest. And I think that that's a lot of what's being seen here, you know. Yeah. Who has the bigger bell? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, so basically they, at this point, as his kind of new, as our kind of, you know, new strategies, right, Orestes is seeking support from Hypatia, basically at this point, essentially as a way to, you know, expand his support by getting the pagans on his side, who, you know, while they don't otherwise directly necessarily have a kind of dog in this fight, are likely to be in support of the person who, like, is slightly nicer to them, I guess. So at this point, then Cyril starts to claim that Orestes is abandoning Christianity, and that's why he's spending all this time talking to pagans, and that Hypatia is seducing him, either sexually or with magic. And I think there is, and so like, it is kind of like a like one line that does show up. But I think that this film goes a little too far in the direction, which is something that you see in some like 19th and 20th century kind of mediocre scholarship as well uh that it very much kind of wants to like have this kind of totalizing history where it like connects this into early modern witch hunts i don't think i think that is overblown and i think the film kind of does a little too much with that but really by kind of using the word as witch and emphasizing that is really kind of a major element in this oh yeah no definitely so it doesn't come from totally nothing but i don't think it's particularly responsibly used Mm mm-hmm I think it would have been better if they just used like the actual language that Cyril used, which we could have, or at least what's reported, and they could have done that. The misogynist invective, I will say, is like not something that is part of our sources, but also again, like as we were saying before, I think not outside the realm of possibility for the sort of thing that one might say. And of course, we do have Hypatia attacked by a Christian mob who strip her. There are different versions. In some versions, she's stoned to death. In some versions, she's dragged through the streets until she died. In one version, they also rip her eyes out. The group is identified as some Christians led by someone named Peter. That's about where the agreement of the source material ends. Sometimes Peter is presented as a church official. Sometimes he's presented as a secular official. It does not say anywhere directly in the contemporary or near contemporary source material that Cyril ordered the killing or that the Parabolani were involved, but both are plausible, I would say. 
and Orestes did indeed leave Alexandria. And the final thing that I wanted to say about Hypatia is that I think it is fascinating that she gets appropriated by Christians as a martyr. And some aspects of her life end up being incorporated into the legend of the martyrdom of St. Catherine of Alexandria. Yeah, that, that's real interesting. I have more to say in our next section. Yeah, so I find that fascinating. The other thing, of course, that's really interesting is that before she gets used in this film, which is very much kind of making a statement that religion is bad, she long, long ago was popularized in uh, especially 19th century anti-Catholic literature. So things that, first of all, you don't want to draw like a very kind of direct line between like Catholicism in the modern world and fourth century Christianity, which is like at best a very wavy line. Yeah. And also, you know, again, like the idea that, you know, Protestants can say like, yeah, it's very common, right? These kind of Protestants that they're like, ah, no, like the problem with Christianity is not us, it's Catholicism. It's very much one of those moves as well, right? To pretend that like, you know, we've never been like this. Anything bad about Christianity is what the Catholics do. I mean, it very much reminds me that I, I taught a course on uh, Jews, money and finance, which went from late antiquity to the present. I had a lot of Christian students who, you know, had at various moments, I would say some amount of discomfort with the fact that like Christianity is, you know, maybe didn't come off so great in this class. And... I think a lot of them essentially did kind of want to dismiss it in that earlier part of the course when we were talking about the Middle Ages, right? Is this a thing that Catholics do? Uh, and then I had them read Luther's on the Jews and their lies. First that bubble. First that bubble, yeah. And it's so- Ultimately it is yeah. good for them. Yes. And so I think that's, you know, a very, a very interesting aspect as well, right? In terms of the way that Hypatia gets used is that she gets used to tell the story that like we Protestants are- fine and good all of the misogyny all of the violence all of the anti-science that's only what what catholics do which uh sure isn't true no so at this point we can get into our fabula nostra where we talk about a film or piece of media perhaps inspired by this one morgan do you want to go first on this sure okay so it's what i'm proposing is three parts the first one is the story of Hypatia and Rachel Weiss can still play her because she's wonderful, but let's actually have the story focus on Hypatia a mm-hmm. little bit more. So the second and third parts, I actually want to, to jump forward in time a little bit. And I want to talk about this medieval appropriation of using her story for St. Catherine of Alexandria. Mm. Um, and then further into like this post enlightenment, this idea of, of using Hypatia to say, well, the Catholics are really the enemy. So the idea is to kind of, here's Hypatia, you know, as close to what she was as we can possibly get, but also here's how this woman has been used for other, other aims throughout this period, throughout our history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The only person I've, I've really cast in this is just, let's just keep Rachel Weiss. Yeah. And I really don't know how this would work in terms of telling the story, but I think that looking at the appropriation of her and that mm-hmm. the history of Hypatia is, is so very often not about Hypatia, yeah. uh, including with this movie. So I think you can still do that. You can still do this history and look at, you know, more recent history that isn't about Hypatia, but what it tells us about 
how other people were perceiving her and using her. And I still think you can get a lot out of that. I think it would be fascinating to have something where you had like, I don't know, maybe like three different, like, I don't know, episodes or something telling her story. And one is something that tries to hew as closely as possible to historical reality. And then others are like takes that are very like overtly biased. So one is like retelling the story to weirdly portray her overtly kind of as a Christian martyr. Yeah. And one is like explicitly drawing on these, like, you know, there's like 19th century, like anti-Catholic British novel. Yeah. Yeah. And like that, that could actually work. That could actually be a little bit more streamlined, but yeah, I think this idea of, of the idea of her, is a little bit more prevalent than the reality of her. And as we talked about a little bit earlier with sources, it's a little difficult to figure out what the reality of her was, but Mm -hmm. certainly there's enough to tell her story. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I will say, I do think there is a lot of value in this film for attempting, you know, to tell the story of this figure in ways that, you know, while there certainly are ways in which I think the film like subtly kind of moves away from her that I don't like. Oh, absolutely. And I'll talk about a little bit that when we do the enumeratio. But I think overall, I-, I will talk about this more then too, but I do applaud the film for actually like making a film about a woman. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, and it, yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah. Yeah. Think, yeah. So that that's my idea for, for what we could do for Hypatia's story. And mine is my weird takeoff. <laughs> Which is that, in honor of the fact that this film uh, doesn't do such a great job of depicting Jews, I would be interested in seeing a film that's just about, right, these religious conflicts in Alexandria in the late 4th and early 5th centuries from the perspective of the Jewish community, which, of course, especially as we move into the early 5th century, really plays a major role here. I think you can include a multiplicity of characters, including, you know, gasp there could be more than one woman even fascinatingly enough and you know i i will have i'm gonna cast rachel weiss that she can be in this version too she did a great job playing a fifth century woman she can now play a fifth century jewish woman like like i told like we were talking about before we hit record there there are very few jewish women in her her filmography Right. And of course, you know, very few major Jewish women characters who are actually played by Jewish women. And, you know, not that I think Rachel Weisz should only play Jews or anything like that. And not that even necessarily I think Jews always have to be played by Jews. But I do think there is a kind of odd dynamic in the way that there certainly is like this kind of history in the Middle Ages of the ways in which Jewish women tend to be less likely to be visually coded as Jewish in Christian art than Jewish men are. Mm-hmm. And given that, I find it really striking that there is also then this history uh, or this kind of present kind of complication that Jewish male characters are much more likely to be played by Jewish men than Jewish female characters are to be played by actual Jewish women. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. And I don't really know what to, to make of it. And I see this a lot just because i watch a lot of Holocaust movies and trying to figure out who, who is an actual Jewish actress playing a Jew. And it doesn't happen all that often. I, so I will say Rachel Weisz has done it twice. Mm-hmm. In 2001, she did a movie called Enemy at the Gates. It's about a Soviet sniper against a German sniper. 
um, she's playing a Soviet character, but her character is Jewish. Um, and there mm -hmm. is a moment where she's talking to Joseph Fine's character where she mentions that her parents were murdered in a pogrom, or not a pogrom, mm -hmm. but by the Einsatzgruppen, yeah. the killing squad. So she's very much a Jewish character in that movie. But of course, portraying a Jewish character in a movie that is taking place in the Soviet Union comes with, that should honestly be its own story. And then she did it where she played the historian Deborah Lipstadt, actual real life person still working, something like special envoy to the United, to the White House on reporting on anti-Semitism or something. It's not the official title. Um, it took them over a year to get to her confirmation hearing. It was ridiculous. But an actual living person who was sued by a man named David Irving um, when she wrote that he was a Holocaust denier. He is, in fact, a Holocaust denier. Uh, and yep. she, she proved this in the British court system. And the, the movie Denial is all about their court battle. So Rachel Weisz has actually played Jewish characters, particularly mm. related to the Holocaust. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's very often, like, I'm trying to think of how, how often. I and mean, first of all, I think part of the, so often we see protagonists that are men. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too, is that I think also there are also relatively few Jewish women portrayed at all is another piece of the puzzle here. Mm -hmm. And I will like in this film, pretty much all of the except for like a couple of like Jewish women in the background who look like they're probably being raped. We don't see Jewish women. Right. In this film that all of the Jews who are, you know, involved in kind of, you know, which, which I will say, you know, because the only Jews we see really in this film are, right, Jews who are very much participating in, like, public, and being, like, public spokespersons for the Jewish community, and those would have been men. Mm -hmm. But that's also a choice in itself, right, that, well, that in this movie in general, right, we only see the people who are kind of involved in that level, and we don't see a lot of other kind of ordinary people. And so, you know, we, we don't see any women except for Hypatia. So. Right. Right. And I think it could be interesting again to have this film that might think about, you know, some of the ways in which kind of on the ground, this affected ordinary people as well. Right. How, how are these conflicts being experienced by people who are not, you know, at the upper echelons of political hierarchies. Estimatio or rating of this film as usual, on a scale from one to five, based on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. I struggled. I think I'm going to go with a four, which is in part an expression of appreciation of the fact that it is a film led by a female character. Mm -hmm. It is a film where she is notwithstanding the many, many issues that I have with the sexual assault scene, but she on the whole, I think is, you know, not a sexual object in this film and her sex and sex life are really off to the side in a lot of ways. And, and you know, and her lack thereof, in fact, is, you know, off to the side. And the film is really about her values and beliefs and her intellectual life, which is something that we don't often get to see as like women's motivating force, right? We don't often get to see women whose main driving force is that they care about their jobs. Yeah. And it's, it's and I, I, it, that's part of what I really like about this. I mean, I think your assessment of her as being asexual is, is probably pretty spot on. 
Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, again, I said it earlier. Which I think it's cool representation as well. 100%. If you made this movie now, I think it would be a little bit more clear, mm-hmm. um, clearly stated that she is asexual. But I mean, how, God, we don't see that in film. Yeah. And I love that she actually, like, that she talks about it, that she's like, I just have never felt that way in a way that, like, actually, really to me, like, I buy, right, as a term, you know, as a wave that she might, that a woman might really talk about this or a person of, you know, of any gender might really talk about this in an era where like, that's not a label, right. And which like, you know, that you wouldn't have that term, but that like, you can see that like, she's thinking about this, right. That this is something that is really important to a lot of people. And it's just never been a thing for me. Mm-hmm. I really love that. And so I think that's so excellent. As I said, I think the fact that like her main thing that she cares about is like her values and her job, I think is excellent and something that like, I mean, cause like I've seen a lot of film and covered a lot of films recently and these are brand new films where there are female characters whose only apparent motivation seems to be that they like this man. Yes. <laughs> Which is bullshit. Yes. And she has her own motivations and wishes and goals which have nothing to do with men whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Men are irrelevant to what Hypatia wants out of her life. And I love that. Oh, it's great, yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing as I really love about this film. It loses, you know, and I'm being like fairly generous because that's so rare, especially in films that I get to cover for this podcast. It's losing the point still because I think it oversimplifies the interfaith conflicts in some really problematic ways. I think the portrayal of Jews is bad. And I'm annoyed that if you're going to invent a character and make him one of your three main characters, it has to be like some fucking man who sucks. While implying that Hypatia is like the only woman who lives in Alexandria. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I actually would also rate it a four, um, and pretty much for the exact same reasons. I think it's so refreshing to see not only a female protagonist, but a female protagonist who there, there is no romance whatsoever in this movie. Like we said earlier, can't blame Oscar Isaac for trying. But yeah, that's not central to who she is. It's not central to her part. I agree very much with you about those criticisms. But I would also add that I think that the movie loses some points as well for the fact that Amenabar for critiquing religion can't get himself out of his Catholic upbringing Mm -hmm. in how he portrays her. And that that ultimately leads to some, some really passive behavior from her or rather Mm -hmm. not behavior because she's not doing much of anything. (laughs) Is passive behavior really behavior? If you're passive, Passive non-behavior. Yeah. Yeah. But that that's kind of where the gender part falls because it does, does get into this, you know, masculine idea of help woman. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so yeah, I would also give it a four. I would also add that I would give Hypatia herself a five on Rate My Professor. Absolutely. Absolutely. She definitely gets a five on Rate My Professor. We've got a, can we create that profile? Hypatia <laughs> of Alexandria. Because <laughs> cla- you have to put what class you took with her. So what would it be? Cosmos 101? Yeah. Astronomy 101, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Astronomy 101. Critiques of Ptolemy. Yeah. (laughs) Hypatia gets a five. She created a welcoming environment where I felt free to speak and free to express my opinions. And a real, as much as Davis sucks, she she creates a very egalitarian 
environment in her classroom where, you know, the voice of this enslaved person she values as much as all of these rich boys. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So she gets a five on rate. My professor gets a four. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. So Morgan, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this movie. Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Twitter is Morgan says balls. Um, it is a locked account. So feel free to just request. It's basically just me yelling at New York times stories and soccer. Much needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Feel free. All right. And if you have listened to, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews and future episodes. And please follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah H. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Morgan, thank you again. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for keep having me back. Of course, anytime. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.